My name is Martin Wiegand. I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger, thank you for your lifetime of teachings and for hosting us back in Omaha this year. Well, thank you. You have mentioned that companies get the shareholders they deserve. And in this year's letter, you mentioned a great satisfaction of yours is working for the individual long-term shareholders. With the growing influence of institutional index funds, how can management teams foster a shareholder culture like the one we have at Berkshire? Thank you. Well, fortunately, we have it. We know more about how to keep it than to, to, to institute one. And it's very interesting. Uh, we have we have a million four hundred and seventy thousand uh, Class A shares outstanding today. That's fewer than we had a year ago in there. The, those seats are filled. I mean, you are the shareholders are in place. We like the group we have. So why in the world? Well, we've got a fixed number of seats, which we sh should we go out and recruit other people to replace you? you know, I mean, the ideal shareholder is the group, shareholder group we can have is the group we have today. And why, you know, if we had a church, we'd want the people to keep coming back week after week after week. If we had a limited number of seats and we had some wonderful parishioners, and uh, we would not go out and recruit another 50 or 100 of them and have to throw out 50 or 100 of the ones we already had. We've got, and uh, every company I know virtually, you know, is wooing new people to come in and whether they're improving the group they get or not is another, I mean, it's a, it's, it, it, it strikes us as, as basically crazy. We, we don't want anybody different than we have now. And, and uh, you know, we're not going to get rid of the index funds, so uh, we have to get rid of, of people like you, and we don't want to get rid of people like you. <laughs> and I, I just don't understand why, if you, if you had a neighborhood, and, you had not, and the size of the terrain or whatever it was would be such that you could have 10, 10 neighbors, and they were all great neighbors, why in the world would you go out and say, to a whole bunch of people going up down the street, you know, why don't you buy the house of the guy next to me? You know, as a, <laughs> it, it is, it is weird. But there's an awful lot of people that make their living by doing that, and they never really question. Uh, I would, I would sort of ask any company that's making handles uh, presentations every month or something. Which of the present ones are you trying to get rid of? You know, basically, because you're not going to have more. I hope you're not going to have more shares outstanding at the end of the year than you have now. And and uh, am I supposed to, you know, get out of the way so some some other fund that is thinking about what your stock is going to do next week replaces me? It, it, it is a very, very, very weird situation. And of course, the really, the, the really. Uh, crazy process that has developed is people talking to, we'll say, analyst group, you know, the, 
sort of the high priests of finance, you know, some companies are doing it more than once a month. Well, just imagine if you go, if you work for that company, you go to work for that company, and every month people are repeating these things about their company that it's important that we have more services per customer and it's 6.2 and we got to get the seven or something like that. And they'd say that month after month after month, it becomes a catechism. And CEO says it or his or her representative says it and it goes, how do you go on the next month and say, by the way, we were really wrong and this is what we should be working on. You don't say that. And it's a terrible problem that the new CEO has coming in after a previous CEO has said the important thing to do is to hit your earnings targets. Well, you know, you have to, he's been meeting them in all probability by cheating from some time to time. And this guy hands you the baton and are you gonna sit, come out and say, well, we've really been cheating a little and it's really counterproductive to the development of the com com you know, companies, not to make earnings projections and just to give you the results as they come rather than, than making up a few things in the accounting department. No, they can't do it. You can't. It's not human nature. And besides, you wouldn't get appointed as a successor, but you just don't go in and say, we've been perpetuating these myths that we can always deliver 8% growth or we can do this or do that or that the most important thing is this. You can't go in and change that if every month you're, you've been preaching to people that this is what we stand for and just ask another question and carry this message out to the masses, to the analysts and all that. And it, it's, it's a totally destructive uh, policy. I mean, I can, you know, I can, within gap accounting, and, and uh, I, I can play a lot of games with numbers. We have never... We've done a lot of dumb things at Berkshire. We have never told anybody that the number had to be this or that or to change anything. I mean, it just, uh, it, once you start it, it's all over. You can't quit. It's like taking $5 out of the cash register. You know, the first time you take the five bucks out, you say, well, I'm gonna put it back. And then, do it a few times and you'll never stop. In fact, do it once and you probably never stop. But it, it, it's, uh, if something is gonna be destructive, the thing to do is not start it. And forecasting earnings, I can't imagine anything more destructive. I got 360,000 people out there and they know whether I'm lying or not, good many of them. And they know what they send in figures and they get changed, you know. But, what message are you telling them? We've, we've got one dramatic illustration of that within Berkshire. And it, it, uh, it, it, it's just, you know, we, we wanna, if, if you start lying, you got a big problem. It's that simple. And, uh, and, uh, and if you start saying to your team that somehow you've got a job, you've got, you've got shareholder relations, your job is to go out and tell everybody that our stock is the best thing among thousands of choices to buy every day. 
well, that's crazy. And, and uh, so what do you tell them? Well, they, they try to you know, see which way the wind is blowing and figure out what they have to tell people. And then they go out and tell them. And, and then if you're a human and you've said we're going to earn $3.59 a share, you can get to 359 and get there quite a while. And, you know, you can have audit committee. You have all these processes. But if you have a culture of lying, the processes really don't. They, they just disappear. And Charlie and I have seen it, well, every time we've gone on a board. But, uh, you know, Charlie, tell them about it. <laughs> Well, I think Berkshire's culture is going to last a long time after we're gone. And uh, I think it should, and I think it'll prosper pretty well. The rest of corporate America is quite different. And it gets more different, I think, with each passing decade. And it's getting very peculiar. Pretty soon they're going to hold all the shareholders' meetings online, and and the shareholders won't even come. And it's just it's getting very peculiar. And the index funds get more and more important in the voting. And it's like everything else in life; it, it changes, and not always in ways you like. And it ends up for selecting different CEOs and all kinds of things. I mean, you're not going to appoint a successor CEO that's going to come in and said everything that's been done before is, you know, it's been kind of fraudulent. You know, I mean, if we needed to book, book an extra sale after the end of the quarter, if we needed to adjust the reserves, and uh, it's just, it's, once you start lying, it's all over. And uh, I just don't know where, any way around that except to try every way you can uh, to not... You sure can't, if you set the wrong example at the top, you got a real problem, you know. We don't, we've never told, we never told anybody to change a figure. We never will. And uh, if they had been changing figures, you know, we'd be in all kinds of trouble because they know it and I'd know it and the next person would know it and it just deteriorates. And we've, 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 we've really seen it. We really think time after time. Board, the way boards operate, you know, it's, it has to be process-oriented. I mean, I understand the problems that Delaware has in writing a statute that judges face when they look at things, but it's extraordinary. Uh, it, it's just extraordinary what uh, an emphasis on process can do to an organization because they think they can do anything if, it, if it's allowed and uh, you know, eventually the foundation crumbles. Uh, okay. Oh, I, I should make a little news here. So, uh, uh, you've, come, you've all come and uh, you may or may not see this, but it's very possible. Uh, one of the things we bought, one of the things I bought, it was bought 
for a different purpose by a different manager months earlier. Uh, he bought uh, roughly 15 million shares of Activision. And I never paid, I knew about the company, but I, I would just see it at the monthly report. But then on January, I don't know, 17th or 18th, something like that, Microsoft announced they were going to buy Activision for $95 a share. Now, when they announce that, at that point, Activision becomes a different kind of security. It becomes what Charlie and I used to call, uh, well, everybody did, 50 years ago, uh, we call them workouts or something like that, and they become known as arbitrage. Well, they're not really arbitrage, but they're, they're securities, they're, those cases are common stock, whose value depends not on what the market price does, but whether a given corporate event occurs, an announced corporate event occurs. Well, Microsoft wants to buy, Activision will say, well, they, they said $95 a share, and they've got the money, and obviously, mergers and big mergers, tech companies, all kinds of things, have got all kinds of problems uh, with the world generally in terms of opinion. So you don't know what the Justice Department will do, or you don't know what the EU will do, and there are all kinds of things. But at that point, it becomes a different security. And Charlie and I, uh, 50 years ago, we used to do a lot of that sort of thing. And, uh, and we, and Gus Levy did it at Goldman Sachs, and we even went back one time, I think, on British Columbia Power, didn't we, Charlie? Yeah, we certainly did. Yeah. <laughs> a guy named Bennett was up there, and we were trying to figure out whether some, some uh, takeover of, of the, the power business. I mean, we spent a lot of time analyzing the probabilities of announced deals going through, and we call them workouts. Now, the term became ARB, and it hasn't worked where it overall too well in recent years. Now, every now and then, uh, I see something that I want to do in that field, and, but very seldom because they gotta be big. The profit is limited. You know, if they say you're gonna get 95, you're not gonna get 96, and you may, if the deal blows up, you may have a stock that's at 40 or something. So it's a, but we, we did it with, uh, Monsanto five or six years ago uh, when Bayer was buying it, and we got very lucky because it, it turned out to be a terrible acquisition for Bayer, but, but it, it, it did go through because Bayer had the money and they, they went through with the deal even though Monsanto came with a problem that nobody uh, really understands to the extent of. And we did it with Red Hat when IBM bought it. So in any event, on September, whatever, I mean, on January, whatever it was, 17th, 18th, 19th, Microsoft announces it, and the stock, which had been at 60, well, let's see what it, I may have a slide here, which I'll find, but in any event, the stock, which had been in the 60s, uh, uh, went up to the 80, 81 or 2, and that looked like, not a big enough spread to me for a few days. And then it settled back a little. So anyway, we now own uh, 9.5%, something like 9.5% of Activision. And if we went over 10%, uh, 
we would file a report. So uh, in order that the news people don't feel that there's no news there, I can tell you that as of uh, yesterday, well, about 9.5%. If we go past 10%, there'll be a form filed with the FCC and so on. But it is, it is, a, it is my purchases, not the manager who bought it some months ago, uh, and uh, if, if the deal goes through, we make some money, and if the deal doesn't go through, who knows what happens. Uh, but that's, I just want to be sure that if we do file that report, people understand very clearly, because there's been some very mixed up stories on that in the past, uh, we want to be very clear that, that uh, it was Warren Buffett's decision in that particular case, and, uh, and he doesn't know what the Justice Department's going to do. He doesn't know what the EU is going to do. He's never talked to anybody in Microsoft about it or anything. He's just read a document. He's made his own assessment. And it can change. And uh, uh, at one time, I think we sold a few shares even uh, when I thought it was a little higher than it should be. And turned out those sales were not bad sales. And so I just want to, I want to create a little news for you. And uh, uh, I want to, if possible, head off stories which have been incorrect in the past and which can then get picked up by other media and corrections never get written. Uh, that all the corrections were written by uh, one inaccurate story. Uh, and they apologized even to me. Uh, both the reporter and the, ed and the editor sent me a personal note of apology. And they, they didn't to make a mistake, but, uh, but when the other publications picked up the story, they didn't bother to pick up the correction, and, and millions of people were misinformed, and probably, uh, literally by the time it gets spread around, and, and uh, uh, this one I will attempt to head off by telling you exactly what the facts are right now, and we'll see whether we go beyond 10%, but if, you know, it could easily be that if it went up a few dollars, I'd it's still a $95 deal. It's still, the, we don't know what the Justice Department will do. We don't know what, what the, the EU will do. We don't know what 30 other jurisdictions we will do. One, one thing we do know is Microsoft has the money. So that, that takes that one risk out of it. Uh, so anyway, Charlie, do you have any news to break? <laughs> no. Yeah. And, and incidentally, I don't even, I don't talk this over with Charlie. I mean, you know, uh, he, he knows. He knows what I. That uh, 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 occasionally I'll see an arbitrage deal and do it. And you know, 50 years ago we were doing it together. And, and his general feeling is, why is Warren fooling around with this kind of stuff? Even, but, but uh, um, it, uh, it's uh, the old fire horse. But occasionally it looks like the odds are in our favor. But absolutely, we can lose money. Uh, on that company, and, and uh, you know, fairly large sums of money, depending on what happened if the deal blows up. And there will be a lot of people that want the deal to blow up. But Microsoft doesn't want it to blow up, so we'll have to see what happens. Okay, enough. Becky. Um, you know, Charlie just mentioned index funds in passing, so let's go to this question from Matt Feigl. His question is related to the growth of passive investing through index funds and ETFs. He says, passive investment vehicles now control upwards of 50% of the United States stock market. 
The actual owners of these passive investment vehicles decided passive investing makes the most sense for them, yet in doing so, passive investors have empowered the large index funds to become the biggest activists in the market. These passive managers now enjoy enormous, and I would argue undue influence over corporate governance. Do Warren or Charlie see any benefit or logic to a rule that would prohibit passive investment vehicle managers from voting the shares they control for their passive investment clients? Well, I'll take that. I think the guy's right. I think, I think the thing is out of control and counterproductive. And, and uh, I don't think it's good for the country to have three passive investors with bright young men from Harvard or what else telling them what proper governance of corporations is. It's not a good development. And it is, and I think indexing, if it gets to 90%, then it won't work very well at all. But at the moment, it's worth fine. Yeah, well, the one thing you can count on, too, is that if it does look like it's going to... Uh, if, if, if the public opinion shifts over to the idea that it really is a good idea to let three people decide the fate of every company in corporate America, the three people, and they won't collaborate or do anything. They're, oh, they're evil people at least. I mean, they're just doing what you and I would do. They would figure, we don't care that much about voting. What we do care about is keeping a lot of assets under management. So we'll... We'll figure out something that ends up reflecting public opinion and then politicians won't get mad at us. And our only threat really is that politicians get mad at us and regulate us in some ways. So we'll head it off. And I, I would predict fairly confidently that if the American public doesn't like the idea of three people controlling things, the three people and their organizations and everything, but the three, they're, what they want to do is they want to get bigger. <laughs> And they wouldn't be where they are in life if they hadn't wanted to get bigger. Those things don't happen by accident. That doesn't mean it's the only thing they want. They want their investors to get good results and everything. But they are certainly not going to follow a policy which is going to cause a backlash that causes them to be a lot smaller. They can figure out their self-interest. I mean, it, uh, and, it's, and it just so happens that in this case, it would achieve the right result, which is that they would not control America, but the, uh, they, they'll do what's good for themselves and, and what they have to do, what's politically acceptable. The, the only thing that really can mess up what is a very good deal for them is to have Congress change the rules. And, and um, the rules were the Investment Company Act of 1940 really changed how people behaved and, and, and it's governed things uh, in a big way for a very long time. And, and uh, anybody that takes on the federal government loses. You know, and if you're talking about trying to do that sort of thing and they don't need to do it. They just, just say, well we'll, well, we'll give up voting or we'll vote our shares as the rest of people do. And of course, if you vote your shares as the rest of the as the rest of the people do, then if the passive, if the if the index funds had 90% of the country, you could take take over a company by 
uh, somebody else buying three or four percent because you'd automatically get uh, the the uh, funds to follow your very small little percentage. You'll see it all play out. I mean, it's it's not an it's a big case, but it's not an unusual case. Okay, station seven. Uh, yeah, Eric Erda and I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So I want to first say thank you so much for a lifetime of knowledge you have both graciously shared with all of us. You have contributed greatly to push our species forward. Moreover, you've taught all of us here, along with many, many millions not here, how to behave more rationally, treat one another with more love, and lead more fulfilling lives. And for that, I want to say a very, a very sincere thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> As for my question, I want to ask about Berkshire Hathaway Energy and the unique structure that has evolved there, given that Berkshire doesn't own 100% of the company. The first part of that question is related to Greg's ownership and his corresponding incentive alignment uh, with overall Berkshire. Now, there's a wise man named Charlie that in 1995, at a speech to Harvard, taught us how important incentives are to human behavior. I would conservatively say that Greg's stake in BHE is worth more than $500 million at present. And I'm curious if you, if you can share any plans that you have to convert his Berkshire Hathaway energy ownership to Berkshire stock, and if there isn't a plan to do this, can you please explain why we shouldn't be concerned about Greg's incentive structure going forward? The second part is about leverage at, at the entity. You have always said that BHE operates with an appropriate amount of leverage given its earning power. With that said, it's still a very, very large debt figure in relation to current earnings, especially uh, with what we have become accustomed to at Berkshire. And I'm curious, if Berkshire owned 100% of Berkshire Hathaway Energy, would you still operate the business with the same amount of leverage? Okay, thank you. Uh, the, second, the second part is the easiest one to answer, so I'll take that. Uh, and I'll throw the first, first one back to Charlie. Uh, but the uh, uh, Berkshire Hathaway Energy actually is required with its regulated utilities, and it basically started pretty much with regulated utilities, um, and, and still is dominated by that, and we're interested in buying more regulated utilities. It's required in different ways by different states and by different regulatory authorities to have a large amount of debt because the regulatory authorities will say in Iowa or, or to pick any state, uh, the regulatory authorities are going to say you can get debt money cheaper then you can get equity money, which historically has largely been, almost always been true. And they say that since we're going to allow you 
a return on equity, we'll say, just pick a figure, but let's say they allow us a return on equity of 9%, and we can borrow a lot of capital at 3%, they say it'll result in higher rates to customers if you use it, put in all equity. We would love to have all equity in our utilities, uh, but we wouldn't, the regulator wouldn't stand for it because it would result in, under the traditional system, it would result in higher prices to consumers. So that's built into the system. And uh, we would, well, our regulator wouldn't allow us uh, essentially to get the same return on equity and, and, and uh, have an all-equity structure. Uh, they, and the answer is, uh, you know, we, we put, well, the actually saw in the, in the film earlier, which the people that are listening or uh, hearing the webcast didn't see, but, but just in Iowa, you know, we recently got approval to spend three and a fraction billion dollars, but, but they want us, Iowa has a history in like every other state in the union, except Nebraska, which is all public power. But every private powers, you know, they have a history of wanting X percent to be in, in debt. They, they want you to raise a lot of money in debt because it's cheaper, means cheaper power for the consumer. So uh, the answer is if we owned 100% of Berkshire uh, Energy, we would be, we would absolutely be following the same we would be operating pursuant to what the utility commissions tell us they want us to do that. They represent the people of those states. Now, Charlie, do you, do you want Well, the other one's simple, too. It's a historical accident. It's not causing any big tension or breaches of fiduciary duty. We had the same problem with Walter Scott, who was the director for years and years, known stock in the same company, also an historical accident. Yeah. I just don't think it's a big problem at all. Oh, did we, I see no, no behavior from Greg ever that isn't in the best interest of Berkshire. Yeah. And we, we've had various percentages of Berkshire Hathaway Energy uh, ever since we bought it in around 2000. And it happened. We were at my sister who's here. We were at her house. And there was a party going on, and 20 or 30, probably 30 people. And Walter said to me, uh, uh, if you got a minute or two, I'd like to talk to you about something. So we went in the library or someplace, and Walter says, you know, we've got this company, and it doesn't seem to fit the public mold very well, and would you, line, would you want to buy in and go, go private? And I, I said, sure. You know, turns on the price. And uh, when we got back to Omaha, I was out on the West Coast. We got back to Omaha. And we met with David Sokol, who was the big holder, aside from Walter. And uh, uh, we agreed on a price. And uh, I remember Walter saying to Dave, don't negotiate with Warren. <laughs> he'll tell you, he'll tell you to forget it and we'll do something else. And uh, uh, so we bought it, and at, uh, so it was 
it was kind of a weird structure from the start. And we had a public utility holding up an act to deal with and all kinds of things. And it's evolved. And uh, it now has us with 91% roughly. And it has Walter's estate. And I don't know where that goes and, uh, uh, at all. And Walter never talked to me about it. And I never asked him about it. Uh, but it's... One way or another, interest connected with them, uh, or in the, in the estate now, close to eight, I guess, and 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 Greg's got one, and and the e, you know, from our standpoint, if we made a a deal with with if they ever came to us, and the, the Scott interest wanted to do something, you know, we'd we'd say fine, well, and we'll do the same thing with Greg if he wants to, and he probably would want to. I mean, but from our standpoint, I've never seen any decision remotely. If I thought that would make a difference, you know, he would not be, he just wouldn't be the right kind of person to run Berkshire. And, and uh, the problem, of course, is that you've got lots of process that can be involved with insiders and everything, and, and I've got no interest in, as long as I'm alive, you know, my interests are 100% with Berkshire, and the board probably, and to some extent, a little reluctantly, but they just say, well, Warren thinks the deal's okay, it must be okay, which is true. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I could make a deal uh, with anybody, and it doesn't get all messed up with process. But on the other hand, if I'm not around, you know, the pressures are the directors to do whatever the lawyers tell them to do, and the lawyers tell them to do this and that, and then they want to bring in investment bankers to make a value. And the whole thing is a game from that point forward. And uh, it's expensive. It takes a lot of time. The people, it, so it would be better if it happened while I'm alive and around, but there's no reason We'd rather have 100% than 91%, obviously, because more earnings for Berkshire. But there's no reason to try and do anything with either the Scott interests or, or, or Greg unless they, they want to do it. And the logical thing is if, if, if anything happened with the Scots, we'd certainly offer it to Greg. But that's, who knows what happens in the future? The one thing I guarantee you, Berkshire Hathaway holders will never be taken advantage of and you know you can you can sue my estate or something like that if it <laughs> if anybody felt differently about that it, it isn't going to happen but it's a lot easier if it's done while I'm around actually than if it's done later but I wish we had 20 more complex inventors just like it yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly true yeah well, it, oh, it it's it's an it's it's a it's a it's a it's, kind of, it's a perfectly logical question. I mean, I, 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 but it uh, it is not a problem, and any answer that's arrived at will be good for all concerned. And right now, I've got no I've got no feeling that that well, I, don't, I have no, no no knowledge at all of um, where the stock. That the Scots have goals, or what they, how they feel about it, or anything, and and, and that's up to them. 
They're fine. You know, the border was our partner, and as far as we concerned, we're concerned, we tr treat anybody connected with them as our partner, and they know that. They don't have to worry about us taking advantage of them, and, and we can understand what. If they don't do anything, we can understand that. If they want to do something, we can understand that. It's a good question, though. Thank you. Okay, Becky. This question comes from Steve Blackmore in Bozeman, Montana. He, this is to Charlie. He says, in the past, you've made favorable statements about investing in China, in part based upon valuation metrics. What is your opinion now, and how much weight do you put on the actions of the government in your analysis? Do the recent Communist Party activities in China, including human rights violations, blatant cyber theft from U.S. companies and others, crackdowns on speech from business and media, et cetera, cause you to change your opinion on investing in China? And how do you evaluate the clear dangers of investing under authoritarian regimes as recently evidenced by Russian atrocities in Ukraine? Well, those are good questions. And there's no question about the fact that, that the government of China has worried the investors from the United States who invest in China more in recent months and years than he did in earlier periods. Uh, so there's been some tension, and it's affected the prices of some of the Chinese stocks, particularly inter uh, internet stocks. Just in the last day or two, the Chinese leader has sort of reversed course on that and said he went, went too far and he's going to pull way back and so on and so on. So we're having some hopeful signs. But yes, there are more difficulties invest in, I mean, of dealing with the regime in China than there are in the United States. And it's different, it's a long way away and they've got their own culture and their own loyalties and so on and so on. And the reason that I invested in China is I could get so much more, so, so much better companies at the at so much lower prices, and I was willing to take a little political risk to get, the, to get into the better companies at the lower prices. Other people might reach the opposite conclusion, and everybody is more worried about China now than they were two or three years ago. So that's, that's just the way it is. I have nothing to add. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Station 8. Hi, Warren and Charlie. My name is Tom Ringe. I'm from Wayne, Pennsylvania. It's great to be back here after two years. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming. In this year's letter, you talked about insurance float, the evolution of float, the per share float, the effect on repurchase uh, to increase the per share float. Uh, and in the regard to the repurchase, I would say thank you as your partner for your careful repurchase as well as careful issuance of our shares. Um, my question is about your expectation for the likelihood that float will be stable and the cost will be zero or close to that over time with adverse years from time to time. What about Berkshire's insurance businesses? 
give you the confidence to make that statement when your competitors are trying to do the same thing but haven't been able to come close to achieving Berkshire's record in cost and growth of float. Thank you. Yeah, well, they, they really are trying to do the same thing, which is kind of interesting. Uh, the, um, the answer to your question is we wouldn't be in the business unless it was my judgment that the likelihood, uh, the weighted probabilities are higher that, that the flow will be useful to us rather than costly to us. And uh, nobody will know the answer to that for a very long time. So far, so good. But, but it is a judgment, and absolutely I could be wrong about it. But you know, the, the, I think both Charlie and I would say that we think the odds are that that it's a winning bet and the odds are pretty good and that we're quite well positioned to do it if anybody does it. But, you know, did we know 9-11 was coming or, you know, I mean, it, it, okay, I mean, it, 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 it is not a sure thing. Just think of what the potential is, though, when you're reviewing it. If we could buy common stocks, we were virtually sure would give us 8% after taxes. With our whole float, that would be a hell of a lot of money. That would be 11 people? billion. I can tell yeah. you what it would be. Yeah. <laughs> and, 11 and, or 12 billion. Yes, it's, it's an enormous amount of money. Annually. Yes, and, and the float has been growing. So relax. We're glad to have the float. But Charlie, Charlie stuck in a couple of ifs there, if we could earn it and if we could. The answer is, you know, that it's our job. And we think we can do it as well as anybody or we wouldn't be doing it. But it's our job to figure out what businesses we want to be in and, and when they don't make sense, reluctantly, occasionally, to give up on them like the textile business. But, but that, that, those, are the, those are the hard decisions. And, and, and insurance, we didn't have the faintest idea back in 1967 when Jack Ringwald stopped by the office a quarter, stopped by at about a quarter of 12, and Charlie Hyder set him up. And Jack, about once a year, he'd get mad at the regulators. He, did, he just didn't like being regulated. And it, it, he'd say to himself, you know, I'm going to sell this damn thing. And Charlie caught him one day, and he, he said, Jack is in the heat. You know, <laughs> I said, bring him around. So he came up, and quarter of 12, and Jack said he wanted to get rid of this damn business. The regulators were driving him nuts or something. And I said, fine, I'll buy it. And uh, I said, what, what price do you want? And he said, I think $50 a share then. And I said, fine, we've done, we've done it. We don't, we don't need an audit. We don't need anything. And then Jack started and he said, well, he says, uh, immediately, he really changed his mind, but he was too honorable to back out. So he said, well, I suppose you'll want me to sell you the agencies, and I said, no. And of course, if I'd said yes, and then he said, well, then we can't do it. So I, I just said, no, yeah, keep him, Jack. You know? And he said, I suppose you'll want me to do this. I said, no, no, I won't want you to do that. He was hoping I would just give him an out. But after, after doing that for 15 or 20 minutes, 
he saw that I was going to agree to everything he said, and he said he'd sell it to me at 50, so he, he followed through, and that was that. And, you know, it was pure luck. And, no, and but, Jack, Gordon, we really like our float, don't we? Pardon me? We really like our float. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's, we it's, love it. No, we, we, we made the most of it, but we didn't make the most of it until a gene came along. <laughs> and, uh, you know... Who knew that the guy was going to walk into my office in 1986 and, and uh, you know, I would decide that he was the guy to make this damn thing work, that I hadn't been able to make work the way I wanted it to. And who knew that Geico would come along later and who knew it? There's just all kinds of things. The one thing you have to be, do is be prepared. When opportunity comes, you really do have to just, you just move and... Fortunately, I operate in an environment, and I wouldn't operate in any other environment. I get, I get out of there, but I operate in an environment where I can do it. And it'd be crazy of the board to say, we want to set up a committee to review every acquisition and all that. And I would say, that's, that's fine, but you can work with somebody else because I, <laughs> I just don't like to go through that, all that stuff. You know, I've got other things to do the rest of my life. As a, so it, there's, there's so much so much luck, but it, there is that you do have to be mentally prepared and to do something when it makes sense and do it big time and do it instantly. And then you got to be sure you've got the resources to do it. And, I mean, you know, the relative absence of bureaucracy at Berkshire Unbelievable. has made the company a lot of extra money for a very, very long time. And it's made my life happier. And yes, uh, <laughs> but that, that, that's ideal. <laughs> no, no, it, 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 uh, but in the end, we are extraordinarily well positioned to do exactly what we want to do with float while at the same time never putting ourselves in the position, never coming close to making a promise we can't keep. We had two small insurance subsidiaries uh, before, well before a uh, Two companies I bought, one I really didn't know that much about, the other one I, I did it all by myself, and uh, they were disasters and left alone, which they could have been, they'd have gone bankrupt. And we just didn't want to do it. So, we, you know, we, we, we could pay the liabilities if the parent company got involved and or we put it in another insurance company or something. I mean, and we, just, we did it. I mean, it, it's uh, you know, Berkshire, you know, in a crazy way, I look, I look at Berkshire as a painting, you know, and it's, it's unlimited in size. It's got an ever-expanding canvas, and I get to paint what I want. And if somebody wants to paint something else, then I'll go someplace, and I'll get a smaller little thing, and I'll paint away. And, uh, you know, I actually... I'm no good. I, I don't know anything about paintings. Take me to an art museum, and you know, all I really want to know is where the men's room is. But, but it, 
it's, you know, I'm just not interested. And other people look at paintings and they see something and then they see something additionally later on. And, I mean, they really have a different sort of perception ability in relation to that. And to me, Berkshire's a painting and I get a paint. And you know, the object, obviously, I want my partners to come out well in them, but the real thing I, I like is the painting. And uh, as long as, you know, it's in my head and I see different things in it as I go along. And, and you know, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's the closest thing I can come to enjoying myself every minute of the day. <laughs> and and uh, it, it's not, I don't prescribe it for other people. And occasionally I, well, not so occasionally, but I, I see things in the painting, you know, I think, well, I should have done that differently. And I go back and paint it over and, and uh, it's, it's satisfying. And uh, who knows why human beings react in that manner, but I, I do know what makes me happy and what doesn't make me happy. Uh, and uh, I found what makes me happy, so why in the world would I change it? <laughs> so that's, uh, that's a short answer to a question that I can't remember what it was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Uh, Becky. This question comes from Andrew Kiesau from Minneapolis, Minnesota. He says, last year, Warren mentioned that inflation had noticeably impacted the prices that Berkshire's businesses were paying and charging. Given those inflationary trends have continued and in some cases accelerated since last year's meeting, could you comment on how this particular inflationary period ranks among previous such periods in the United States, like the 1970s and 1980s, and what can American businesses and citizens do to reduce the negative impacts that inflation brings about? Well, we've sort of attacked the, what you do yourself. And, and you, know, you develop skills that, that people are willing to pay for in the future, regardless of what the unit of exchange is. But, uh, but in terms of inflation in our own businesses, it's extraordinary how much we've seen. You know, with, uh, the, I think you interviewed Herb Blumpkin at the Furniture Mart, and for two years, uh, you know, the prices have just kept coming in higher for these things, and we, and we sell them for higher prices, and people have more money than they've had before, and uh, uh, they like to buy, and there's certain things they can't buy. It's like during World War II, you had a lot of money created, and people couldn't buy cars, and they couldn't buy refrigerators, and they couldn't even buy as much sugar or coffee or things as they wanted. They had little stamps and gasoline and all kinds of things. Well, eventually, you get a lot of money in people's hands, and you don't have very many goods. Prices go up. You can do all kinds of things uh, to, uh, you know, try and talk it down. And of course, inflation is never the same. Nothing in economics is the same the second time after it happens than the first, because the first affects people's attitudes in the second, and this, their attitudes always influence the, the, the activity itself. I mean, it is, it is an interesting phenomenon. There, there, people write a textbook, and they write it based on the last experience, and people read the textbook, so they behave differently next time, and then they wonder why they get, they're getting a different result than they got the time before. So. Anyway, we have, we have sent out 
lots and lots and lots. When I say we, I mean the United States government. We have, the government has set out lots of money to people. And at some point, you know, it, it, the money can't be worth as much as it was when there was less money out. Here's an, here's an interesting figure that uh, I think probably will astound you. Sounds me anyway. The Federal Reserve every Thursday puts out a balance sheet. The, the Federal Reserve and Treasury, they're complicated institutions, but they do put out this kind of consolidated statement of all the various Federal Reserve banks, all these things that have entered into legislation over the years. And, and, but there's a balance sheet. And 15 years ago, roughly, um, if you look, you know, the Federal Reserve issues those notes I talked about uh, a while back. And uh, that's the one, there's uh, the current one. <laughs> and they print these pieces of paper. And they, one way or another, they got it in the hands of people. Well, the interesting thing is people said cash is dead and all that sort of thing, you know, cashless society. Well, there were 800 billion, go back 10 or 15 years, there was about 800 billion of currency in circulation. And if you look at last Thursday's report, you'll see there's something like now $2.2 trillion of currency in circulation, 2.2 trillion. Now there's about, um, there's, 300, well, there's 300, there's 100, and, there's 330 million people in the United States. Let's look at it that way. And with 330 million people, and you have almost 2.3 trillion of currency in circulation, that's $7,000 per person. Every man, woman, and child, in theory, has $7,000 worth of currency. Well, you know, that isn't right, but you, but you do know that the Federal Reserve's bookkeeping is essentially right. They've got that much that's out there. I don't know whether where it is. I mean, I don't know whether it's in Russia. I don't know whether it's in South America. I don't know where, you know, I don't know whether Charlie's got it all. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a staggering sum, you know. Cash is dead, and yet we, on average, have $7,000 for every person in the United States. Now, uh, while you're absorbing that, think for a moment what would happen if the U.S. government said, well, they work it out in private, and uh, they decide that they're going to send Federal Reserve, and I'm not going to blame the Federal Reserve for this. Somebody back in Washington <laughs> decides they're going to send out a million dollars to every household in the United States. And uh, there are 130 million households in the United States or something like that, you know, and, and the, they're going to mail you a million dollars in cash. And there were a couple of provisions attached to it. Um, one is, if you talked about it in the next 30 days, the money disappeared. So it was like in one of those old TV shows or something, and poof, disappears. And 
uh, after 30 days, uh, you could spend it. Well, all of a sudden, you've, the household wealth of the United States, Federal Reserve puts out an estimate, was 130 trillion or something like that. So basically, you've doubled the household wealth. And all you've done is mail out people, but then you don't tell them you're doing it with everybody. You just say they won the lottery or whatever it may be. And now you've got an amount equal to household wealth. Uh, you've got to, every, on average, people have doubled it. They've got, they've got this extra 130. trillion of wealth, and uh, in a month they can spend it. Well, what's going to happen? Well, it, uh, prices are going to go up, but are they going to go up immediately? You know, uh, well, you don't know the other guy got it. You just know you've got it, so you don't really feel like you got to rush out and buy things. But as soon as word gets around, well, we've mailed out. If you look at the amount we've distributed, the federal government. I'm, not talking about, I'm just talking about the distribution of resources. We're, we're talking numbers like that, and, and it, it affects prices. It has to affect prices. If you had 10 times as much, if you went home and you found out you had 10 times the net worth you had yesterday, but everybody else did the same thing. It had, doesn't increase the amount of bread in the economy or the number of cars. It, it just means that the price... <laughs> the value of this is going to go down, and the, and, uh, and and its purchasing power. You can't buy more than exists. So it's a very strange period where we had lots of money sent out to people. Who, one way or another, we're getting it. That that uh, they didn't find as many places things to buy as before, and we had supply chain disruption. We have all these things happen. But the end of it is they go out to the Nebraska Furniture Mart and they start buying things. And they do it with our other companies. And they do it uh, in very peculiar ways. And now they're buying, I mean, one thing, you know, jewelry stores were, generally speaking, not a very good business. And, and two years ago, uh, every landlord that had a, real, a jewelry store or multiple jewelry stores in their mall, you know, was wondering how they were going to get their rent. And uh, now every jewelry store virtually is, is doing incredibly better than they ever dreamt with way less inventory because people are just come in and buy. I mean, and they don't wait for sales. You know, when they walk in the store, they're going to walk out and they're going to have bought something and uh, they pay for it. They got the money. So we are seeing an unleashing of the fact that we've just mailed a lot of money to people. One way or another, it's very indirect. And it all gets complicated when we talk about a big system, but this is what's happened. And uh, I will guarantee you that if we just, if we mail out a million dollars to every household in the United States tonight, and you don't know that it's happened, you know, you don't really expect much to happen in behavior tomorrow, but somehow, at some point, and then if you start doing it every month, we'll say, 
and people really know you're doing it. Then they start anticipating it and buying at a time and forward. I mean, there's a million things that happen in economics. But the, the answer is we've had a lot of inflation and it was almost impossible not to have if we're going to mail off the kind of money we've mailed off. And it's probably a good thing we did it. In fact, I think there was one point when the Federal Reserve, uh, which in fact creates the money, uh, the, if they hadn't done it, your lives would be a lot worse, a whole lot worse now. And that was an important decision. And, and uh, uh, that's the way the, that's the, uh, that's why you've had inflation and heaven knows, I mean, it could end. You can throw the country into recession. You can do all kinds of things. The country's going to have recessions, incidentally, and it's going to have depressions periodically. And, and, and things don't, things will happen differently. And you'll read a newspaper today and you'll wonder a year from now, why was I reading the newspaper a year ago? I mean, it, 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 it's, it's just the way it works. I mean, when I bought the first stock in 1942, did I know everything was going to happen afterwards? Of course not. I didn't know a damn thing. But... Uh, I just needed to have one idea, and that idea wasn't really well formed. It was just—it was just probably the way practically every kid felt about the country when we just gone into a war. You know, we thought America was going to win, and America was going to win then. It was going to win just generally, and and savings bonds were paying 2.9 percent. I learned that because we. We bought them. They called them war bonds originally, and they called them defense bonds, and they called them savings bonds, but they were the same thing. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's you, you print loads of money, and money is going to be worthless. Not worthless. I got in trouble doing that one time with CNBC because I said it was going to be worth separately less, but it got contracted down to worthless. <laughs> so I, I, it took me a few years to learn that. To separate those words somehow. Uh, anyway, that's everything I know about economics and more, and Charlie can probably improve on it. <laughs> well, it, it happened on a scale this time we'd never seen before. Those checks that were just mailed out to everybody who claimed to have a business and claimed to have employees, they, they, they probably drowned the country in money for a while. And, they, and as you say, they probably had to do it. But it, it was something that had never been done on that scale before. But we had a problem we hadn't had before. Yes. No, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying it wasn't a good no, idea. Was, I mean, in my book, Jay Powell's a hero. I mean, it's very, very simple. I mean, he did what he had to do, you know, when, when the, if he had done nothing, it would be, the, I mean, he would be, uh, you know, be very easy to engage in what you would call thumb-sucking then. And plenty of, I shouldn't say plenty of, but there are other Fed chairmen that would have been sucking their thumbs and the world would have fallen around them and nobody would have exactly blamed them. They would have blamed the, the virus and the Chinese and all kinds of things. Well, the really interesting company is Japan where they, first they buy back all the debt and then they start buying back all the common stocks. Now that's really weird. And what did they get? 25 years of stasis. Who would have pre predicted that? Well, nobody predicted anything. I mean, <laughs> there's nobody's predictions that we're interested in, including our own. I mean, it's very simple. The, what we do know 
is that we can we can we can deserve your trust, uh, and there's no reason to do things that don't deserve it, and we can't tell what. But basically, we think we're trying to build a Berkshire that cannot can't withstand a nuclear exchange, but it can withstand just about withstand as much as in. anything that can, that we can do anything about, and. Uh, and uh, that leaves us feeling good. It doesn't leave us feeling perfect. That we'd like to even promise you more than that, but we can't promise more than that. So it's, it's very simple. But, uh, uh, and with that, we'll move on to 18. Let's see, that's station nine. Dear Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger, I'm Ili Abushakra from Montreal, Canada. I would like to thank you for everything you've done for us, your fellow shareholder. My question is regarding the gap rules. If you were to change it, what would you change and what it would look like? Thank you. Well, I would resign the job. What would you do, Charlie? <laughs> no, it's an impossible problem because first of all, you have to decide whether what gap is supposed to reflect. And it doesn't reflect value. But in certain cases, of course, it is important to say that this is value and so on. I mean, it is a, it's, it's, it's a convention and it is done so that the auditor generally is protected because otherwise everybody sues everybody in this country for anything. And it's designed to uh, uh, cause people who want to report a given amount of whatever is desired by the market to largely be able to do it. I, and I, I don't know how I would write the rules. I mean, I've watched people who I would be delighted to have live next to me. You know, if I was going away for two weeks and my kids were to stay at somebody's house, It'd be fine with me if they they stayed there. If I lost my wallet someplace and they found it, they'd, they'd return it to me. But they'd play, they'd play games with any number that came to them. And of course, it's a very awkward thing to be on the audit committee of a company where people are playing around with the numbers. And, and they're... And they don't want you. If you raise a stink, you've got all kinds of problems. And I actually wrote something some years ago of four. I was kind of anticipating your question about 15 years ago, I guess. And I, uh, I wrote four suggestions for questions to be asked of the audit committee. And uh, I don't know whether I was on the audit committee then of Coke or where. But anyway, it was just clear to me what was what was happening, but you had to, you really had to follow the charade or you got in all kinds of trouble for doing that too. And so uh, I just put four questions out that, that I would want to know and they were perfectly logical questions and, and in the end, nobody adopted them. I mean, <laughs> it, 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 the system was fine as it was. The auditors got sued, but not that often and, and uh, the SEC had lots of rules, and I admired the SEC enormously. I think I think the country is better off because of the SEC. But but 
it is a hopeless question or problem to uh, devise rules that that people can't get around. I mean, it's it's uh, it's, uh, it's it's not. I think it was who was it that uh, uh, my friend that was a writer said it's not the it's not the illegal things that are outrageous. It's the legal things. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's very hard. You try, and it's worthwhile. You need an SEC, but the SEC can't really stop the stuff that, that you know, you would find outrageous. It, you know, it, uh, it explains, and the auditors have the same, the same question. I mean, the auditors uh, really want to... They want rules and they want processes and they want it to be so they can operate. Charlie found a, he was on the audit committee of Solomon and we had probably literally millions of contracts where people put numbers in. And, uh, and he found that $20 million, we had the largest auditing firm of the country then, Arthur Anderson, as I remembered. Charlie. They're gone now. Yeah, they're gone now, but they were the, but they were the largest. And Charlie found a $20 million error, I think, one time in an audit. They called it a plug. When your accountant starts talking about a plug, it's not good. Well, I'll tell you a story I haven't told before. <laughs> you saw in that movie, people who were here saw me testify in August before a subcommittee who were out to, you know, get their way. And, and, uh, uh, and I, I just decided, I, you know, I was just going to answer every question honestly, and I was not going to try and draw up anything. And so I just sat in front of them and, and, uh, and said what I knew and didn't know. And one of the things I said, which was absolutely true, is that I'd only been there 10 days or so at Solomon, but I said, I really haven't seen anything yet that strikes me as terrible in accounting. Uh, but I've been there 10 days, but, uh, but, but this guy who got us in all this trouble, so far, he's the only thing I found. I don't know what else was going to be found. How in the hell could I know what had gone in a place that was doing, you know, incredible numbers of transactions and everything. Well, uh, but I said, you know, what I've seen, the accounting strikes me as, as legit. Uh, about a month later, I was so happy I'd testified earlier, not later, uh, a very fine CFO, and very, these are decent people. They're very decent people. And he comes in and he said, um, Warren, there's, there's probably something you should know. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, well... 12 years earlier, or whatever it was, Solomon had merged with Fibro, which was a huge trading company. Solomon was a huge investment banking company. It became his huge powerhouse. And he said, uh, 12 years ago when we merged with him, uh, we sort of couldn't find exactly, they were on a trade basis and we were on a settlement basis. And, and they said, we, we never really figured out how to put the books together. This is the largest uh, audit company in the United States, Arthur Anderson, that's responsible for signing this thing. 
So we have this number, and every day it moves around, and it's just put in there to make assets equal liabilities. <laughs> and, and, you know, today it's 173412000 you know, <laughs> down to a penny, and tomorrow it'll be something different. You know, and I thought to myself, I am sure glad I testified for Congress a month ago, because I did not know then. But uh, if they ever ask, ask me again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell them exactly what happened. That, that we've just got this number that floats around every, every day, and we haven't found it in 12 years, and Arthur Anderson doesn't know where it is. <laughs> and, and, you know, you've you got to make the assets equal to the liabilities, right? I mean, so what else do you do? <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. And strange things happen in this world. There's one I think thing. The I, name was the floating plug. Yeah, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And Charlie's on the audit committee. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The one thing I've always suggested. Nobody ever wants to do this. I can understand why. But you've got trillions of dollars worth of contracts and everything that people are putting down little numbers for every day at banks and investment banks and all over the world. I mean, commodity traders. And, and at Berkshire, we, we stick down something. You know, there's certain hedging that even the, the regulators want us to do in terms of giving utilities, and we put a little number in. And I've, I've made the suggestion once or twice that if you really want to do something sort of interesting, you know, just get some young guy that... Uh, Give them a couple of weeks and pick the 100 most kind of complicated, long-term, you know, lots of wording, uh, derivative contracts, and look at what one side who promises to do something values it at, and look at what the other side who also reports, you know, and, and just let them do it for 100 operations at random. I just like to know if somebody's valuing some, we're valuing a contract at 28 million, the other guy's valuing it at 33 million, to, you know, and, and you've got the same auditing firm on, in both cases, and they're, they're, they're signing their name to it. Nobody ever, I don't think anybody's ever done anything with that suggestion. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, that would be the first thing I would do, actually, if I really wanted to sort of dig into what was happening in accounting, but... But there's a lot of things in life you can't change, and, and uh, nobody is going to go looking for ways to create lawsuits and newspaper stories, all kinds of things, and I don't blame them. But, uh, I did, and I brought one thing I just couldn't resist. I was hoping I'd get a question, so I'll ask it myself. Uh, I, <laughs> I was hoping to get a question that how could be some guy be so idiotic as to propose a price uh, that of $848.02 or whatever it was, or is, for Allegheny Court? And, uh, I mean, that, isn't that getting a little scientific? You know? <laughs> and, and, of course, I did provide, when I made the offer, that it'd be $800. $50 less whatever was paid to whatever investment banker they wanted to select Allegheny in this case. And, and they're bound to have to do it because Delaware law is developed in such a way that 
the directors are protected if they get expert opinions, all that sort of thing. So I, I, don't, I don't fault anybody in the system, but I just thought it might be useful, actually, um, maybe to Delaware judges someday, Delaware, Delaware statute makers, maybe people that are writing papers, who knows? But I suggested that, that we just, since I'm willing to pay $850 a share for the place as is, you know, if the audit fees are, I mean, if the, if the advisory fees are 10 million or 40 million, that it makes a difference to someone. And, and, uh, and it's always made a difference to us as the buyer, but that's just the way the game was. Well, there's a little history to that. And I went back and there's been twice in the, nobody's ever paid attention to this, but, but it, uh, there's been twice in the history of Berkshire Hathaway, 57 years, twice that Berkshire was required to get a fairness opinion. And it was perfectly logical that we be required to get a fairness opinion in those two cases, because in one case, Diversified Retailing, which was a company I was invested in, in both of them that came out of our partnership, but one had a group of shareholders that were different than the other group of shareholders at Berkshire, and the two of them want to merge. So you have two companies with me being the biggest beneficiary in between. And, uh, and it really, it wasn't up to me to determine the ratio. I mean, even though I had the most involved, but, but I had a little more of one company than the other. So anyway, a fairness of opinion was required. And this has only been twice in the history of Berkshire that one was required. So naturally I went to Charlie. I said, Charlie, you know, we do have to, I mean, Charlie told me, we, he knew it better than I did. We need a fairness opinion in this case. And uh, I said, you know, I know what's fair. You know what's fair. Sandy knows what he thinks is fair. If the three of us owned it, in 10 minutes, we could have worked out a deal that all three of us regarded as fair. But because there were public shareholders and everything, it wasn't right to do it that way. And, and the, first time, the first one, we have two of these, but the first one was uh, November 27, 1978. And I told the shareholders, essentially, that uh, uh, my personal belief is that both diversified and Berkshire shareholders will benefit from the merger, but I will, not, I, but I'll, I will vote for the merger only if a majority of the shares, which are voted by other shareholders of each company, are voted to support it. So I, I, which was fine. I committed myself, you know, that, that let the other people decide whether this is fair. But on top of that, we needed to get a fairness opinion from an investment bank with a big name and everything. And so I said to Charlie, I said, you know, these things are going for a million or two million bucks where they get some guy that they hired last week and he, he writes up a little thing and, and then we get a bill for a million or two million. They really haven't done anything. They don't, they don't know either company and you know, they, there's a million things they're not gonna know about it, but, but they're gonna write an opinion and, uh, and we need the opinion. I said, so what do I do? I go to Charlie with these kind of problems. And Charlie said, Warren, it's very simple. 
He said, uh, uh, pick out 10 prestigious investment banks and do exactly what I say. <laughs> so, okay, Charlie, uh, what do I do? When I call and get these 10, he says, well, put them in order, one through 10. And he said, call the guy at the top of the list and tell him you'll pay him $60,000 for doing a fairness opinion. And you know that it's an insulting price and it's ridiculous for him to do it because it'll affect what he can get from other people down the line. They'll look back and they'll say, well, Buffett only paid 60000 Why should I pay $2 million? And it's, 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 but he said, just tell them that that's what you'll pay. And if, if they're insulted by it, which they probably should be, then you'll go to number two. And they'll offer them the same deal. And you'll just keep going down until you get to number 10. And if you don't have anybody by number 10, you've told the other people, you'll come back to number one again. And you'll say, well, I'll pay 80000 and then you'll go down the list and everything. Well, so I picked 10 names out, and number one name was Jack Shad. And Jack Shad was a, a, a friend of Tom Murphy's, a friend of Bill Ruane's, and he was running E.F. Hutton, and he was, he, he was a very, very, very successful investment banker. I didn't know him as well as the others, but I'd, I'd met him through my friends. So I called up and I said, Jack. I said, I've got this crazy request. He says, only because everybody admires you so much and my friends are your friends and blah, blah, blah. And E.F. Hutton is so well regarded. I said, I'm going to do something that's, I'm going to ask you something that is totally against your interest. And I fully understand the fact that you're gonna say, you're an idiot to call me on this and slam down the phone. But I said, Jack, here's, a, here's our procedure. And I described this procedure that he gets called first and if he turns it down, then I go to Payne Weber, and then I go to the, and I go through all, and I tell them, there's these 10 people. And if we don't get any yeses, I'm gonna come back to you again, and I'll offer you 75, and we'll do the same thing till somebody says yes. Uh, and I said, Jack, you know, but you are the first call. So uh, $60,000, and it's gonna screw up your business if you do this, because every client you get in the future is gonna say, well, you did it for diversified retailing and Berkshire, and why in the world should we pay you $2 million when he paid you 60000 And Jack said, don't worry about it, Warren. <laughs> I can take care of that. <laughs> he says, we're in. And uh, <laughs> so we got a fairness opinion but, but, uh, but for one side. Now the next call I made was to Payne Weber, and I said, gave him the same story. And uh, uh, I said, E.F. Hutton was dumb enough to take the one side for 60,000 bucks. You know, I, I don't know why the hell they're doing it. You know, they're, they're destroying their reputation and all that. And Payne Weber said, we'll take the other side for 60,000. <laughs> <clears throat> so we have, a we have a thing here that describes the whole process. And they got well low. They sent out an amiable alcoholic. They uh, had to do something with. Well, what they did. <laughs> Was they each billed us for sixty thousand bucks, and we paid it. That's what you get for sixty thousand bucks. No, no, no. <laughs> we we got the same thing everybody else got, yeah, Charlie. I know. And 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 of course, Jack Shad uh, 
This was 1978. He was appointed chairman of the FCC <laughs> seven years. I mean, Jack, Jack liked to do business. And, and it's true, it didn't hurt him. They paid us 60,000 and they went back and charged somebody else 2 million, you know, the next week. And those guys, it's all play money. And uh, so we did the same thing when we got the blue chip stamps where we were similarly conflicted four or five years later. We went back to the same two guys and there'd been a lot of inflation and everything like that. So we, we said 110,000 then. I've got the prospectus for that. And, both of them said, you know, send it in. Don't worry about our other clients. We can, we can, we'll figure out some story to tell them, you know, and whatever it may be. But I just thought it would be interesting to, at some point have people realize that it's not play money. Somebody pays it. And it's a game. And, you know, it, 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 uh, but it's, it's, it's what passes muster in Delaware, and the directors will have it explained to them by the lawyers that they're not going to get sued if they do it in a certain kind of way. And, you know, it, it, it's uh, uh, so I just decided that somebody at some point ought to point out what actually is happening in the situation. And that's why we did it that way. And, and uh, you know, it, it may go down with our earlier attempts to educate the world on the realities of finance and its various interactions and why it's better to teach your son to be an investment banker than to be an electrician, you know, or something. But uh, it's, uh, uh, you've got an eccentric chairman and that's what he did. Charlie, how do you feel about this whole matter? It was your idea, I'm originally. Well. <laughs> It's, we're a little peculiar, <laughs> and it's not all, all the peculiarities are not bad. I talked to Charlie before, and I didn't talk to Charlie before I did it this, uh, this time. But, yeah, it, but Charlie has given me four ideas and together that on extremely practical matters <laughs> were so much. Uh, I mean, it's, they, they, they just changed everything. I, I think you really ought to tell about the experience with the fraud claim. <laughs> uh, what? On the fraud claim, it, uh, you know, that, uh, the fidelity claim with the guy, you know, you had, you had the very well-known insurance company that you don't have to name names, but uh, where the, you know, you basically told them just raise the stakes uh, to, to make the the game fair. This was back in the 1960s. Do you remember that? I don't remember. Oh, well, I, I do re I remember it. Well, tell it then. Uh, <laughs> um, Charlie had this tiny little operation which he ran as fund, also had a seat on the Pacific Coast Stock Exchange. The firm was called Wheeler Munger. It was called Wheeler Munger at first. Later it changed itself to Munger Wheeler. And Jack Wheeler said, well, pretty soon it'll be Munger and Company, but that's okay. They, Jack Wheeler was a very interesting guy and he had the specialist position in General Motors and a few things. And some employee stole like, I don't know, 12,000 bucks or something like that. From yeah, the well, he hit, he hit, I remember, he hid the trading tickets. Yeah, yeah. Some, guy, some guy steals some money and Charlie's firm, Wheeler Marker, 
was required to have a fidelity bond and all these things that covered dishonest employees and all of that sort. So this guy's clearly dishonest. He's clearly stolen the money. So Charlie puts in a claim for $12,000 or something like that, whatever the loss was, and sends it to this very big and prestigious insurance company. And of course, the insurance company denies this claim. They say, you know, the guy really wasn't employed, he doesn't exist, you don't have a dog, you know. I mean, the, the whole thing. And Charlie gets this letter back and they're not gonna pay the claim. And uh, so Charlie writes a letter to this very well-known, big name, uh, person that runs the insurance company. And he said, look it. He said, we have this $12,000 claim. And he said, this guy stole the money. Uh, and we thought we had an insurance policy against people stealing, <laughs> the payless people stole money. And he said, he, he said, we're in this very interesting position because you've got a bunch of people on the payroll and they're gonna get their weekly check or monthly check, whatever they do, so they just say, we're not gonna pay, and life goes on. Whereas I'm sitting here, and I've got my time. I gotta work on this thing, and it isn't worth the $12,000 for me to fool around with this claim against the company, and they'll appeal it and all these things. So he said, I know that you would be offended by the thought that you might be using this inequality of bargaining position to avoid playing at the claim. I, that never could be your intention. So what I suggest in order to really live up to your code of behavior is why don't we make the $12,000 claim, we'll just, we'll just multiply it by 10 and call it 120,000 either way. And if you lose, you pay me 120,000. If I lose, I'll pay you 120,000. Now it's worth my while. And uh, <laughs> he addresses the letter to the chairman and says that's the guy. He gets a $12,000 check by return mail. <laughs> it's not a bad lesson. He's told me two others, but the tricks are too good. <laughs> I don't even want to share them now. I may use them myself someday. Okay, uh, let's go to uh, Becky. Uh, we got a lot of questions on this topic. I'll ask this one that came from Raj. He says, have you changed your views on Bitcoin and or cryptocurrency in any respect? I'm conflicted about this because his own views have slightly evolved during the past two years from Bitcoin is a fraud and waste to Bitcoin is in a speculative bubble but might have some uses. Well, <laughs> I shouldn't answer any questions on the subject, but I will. <laughs> uh, you know, there's, there's all kinds of people watching this that are long Bitcoin and there's nobody that's short and nobody, nobody wants their windpipe stepped on. I don't blame them. I don't like people to step on my windpipe. But I would say this, that if all the people listen, if the people in this room uh, owned all of the farmland in the United States and you offered me a 1% interest in it and you said for a 1% interest in all the farmland in the United States, uh, pay me, uh, pay our group 
Um, well, let's see. Uh, hey, it says bargain price, $25 billion. I'll write you a check this afternoon. $25 billion, now I own 1% of the farmland. If you tell me you own 1% of the apartment houses in the United States, uh, and you offer me uh, a 1% interest, so I'll have a 1% interest in all the apartment houses in the country, and you want whatever it may be for it, then call it another $25 billion or something. I'll write you a check. You know, it's very simple. Now, if you told me you owned all of the Bitcoin in the world, and you offered it to me for $25, I wouldn't take it because what would I do with it? Um, I have to sell it back to you one way or another. I mean, maybe I'd be the same people, but it isn't going to do anything. The apartments are going to produce rental, and, and the farms are going to produce food. And uh, uh, if I've got all the Bitcoin, you know, I'm back where whatever his name was, who may or may not have existed, was you know, 15 years ago. If I've got it all, he could create a mystery about it. But everybody knows what I'm like. I mean, so if I'm trying to get rid of it, you know, people will say, well, uh, you know, why should I buy some Bitcoin from you? <laughs> I mean, why don't you call it Buffett coin? You know, make your own or something. What? Do something. But uh, I'm not going to give you anything for it. And you'd be right, incidentally. But that explains the difference between productive assets and something that depends on the next guy paying you more than the last guy got. Now, net, if you look at it, a lot of commissions have been paid, and there's, I mean, there's all kinds of frictional costs that are very real that somebody has paid to a bunch of people who facilitate this game. But whatever one group of the public has taken out, or one group of owners, has come in from other people. I mean, it's other people have entered the room and they move money around, but, but no money has, there's no more money in the room, it's just changed hands with a lot of maybe fraud and costs involved and, you know, a whole bunch of things you lose, you know, you forget the numbers or forget the equation. The, uh, you can do that with a lot of things. I mean, it's been done throughout history. Uh, certain things have value that don't produce something tangible. I mean, you can, you can say a great painting, you know, probably will have some value. 500 years from now, may not, but the odds are pretty good that if it was a big enough name at some point, there will be a few things. I mean, it, you know, you can, uh, you can find something, if somebody wants to sell you a pyramid or something and you can charge the viewers, or, you know, it'll be around a long time and, and won't produce anything, but, but, but uh, people will find it interesting to go there because I've read about the pyramids, but basically, uh, assets to be to have value, they have to deliver something to somebody, and uh, uh, and there's only one currency that's acceptable in the United States. I mean, you can you can come up with all kinds of things. Uh, we can put up Berkshire coins, or you know, we can put up 
Berkshire money or anything like that. But uh, we get in trouble, I guess, if we call it money. But uh, in the end, this is money, and, and there's no reason in the world why the United States government, whose currency people prefer, I mean, we, literally there's 2.3, just under 2.3 trillion just of these little pieces of paper floating around someplace. There's 7,000 for every man, woman, and child in the United States, and of course most of them probably aren't in the United States. Who knows? But this is the only thing that's money. And anybody that thinks the United States is going to change the way they let Berkshire money replace theirs, you know, is out of their mind. I mean, and, uh, uh, so anyway, uh, with those few deficiencies, uh, you know, you can, whether it goes up or down in the next year or five years, ten years, I don't know. But the one thing I'm pretty sure of is that it, it doesn't. It doesn't multiply. It doesn't produce anything. It's. It's. Uh, it's got a magic to it, and people have attached magics to lots of things. I mean, the gold in Wall Street. You know, create magic. You know, you know. We are not an insurance company. We're a tech company. Well, we're an insurance company, but a dozen people or so have raised a lot of money. They just say, just don't pay any attention to the fact that we sell insurance. We are a tech company. Well, in the end, they wrote insurance and. Overwhelmingly, they've lost a lot of money since then. It, 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 you, can, you, can, you can make up things that work well in getting money from other people, and that's why. Well, I have a slightly different way of looking at it. <laughs> I'll sell you some then. Well, I, the, in my life, I try and avoid things that are stupid and evil and make me look bad in comparison with somebody else. And Bitcoin does all three. <laughs> and, and, and the first place, it's stupid because it's very likely to go to zero. The second place, it's evil because it undermines the Federal Reserve System and the national currency system, which we desperately need to maintain its integrity and government control and so on. And third, it makes us look foolish compared to the communist leader in China. He was smart enough to ban Bitcoin in China. And with all of our presumed advantages of civilization, we are a lot dumber than the communist leader in China. Yeah, and when 25% of the people of the country get mad because we've said what we've said today, just remember Charlie spoke last and was the most... <laughs> One development that I really do think is actually important, but I don't know any way to do anything about it. But I would, my general sense, and there's no way to prove it, but I essentially believe people are now behaving somewhat more tribal than they have for a long time. And I mean, people are always going to be partisan, and they're they're going to have religious beliefs. They're going to have all kinds of things, but. But it gets, pretty, it gets pretty tribal. And I want to tell you, I speak from experience because I've been tribal. And, you know, we're confessing today. Uh, and uh, 
you know, Nebraska football is tribal. And when I watch a television set and I see our guy step, Nebraska, step out of bounds by a foot, but somehow the ref misses it and calls it in, and then they show six replays, I'll continue to believe it was in, even though it's right in front of my eyes. <laughs> they stepped out. You know, that's tribal behavior. And, and it's fun. I mean, <laughs> participating. Uh, but it, gets, it can get very dangerous when people, one group of people say two plus two is five, and another say it's two plus two is three. You know, and they're going to give you those answers if you call them. And the interesting thing is, to me, at least, and partly because of my age, but I actually think that just from memory, uh, that the last time that the country was seen as tribal was actually when I was a kid and Roosevelt was in. Either you hated Roosevelt or you loved him. I mean, nobody cared about the fact Alf Landon was running or Wendell Wilkie was running against him. They just had these feelings. They either had Roosevelt's picture on the wall and named their kids after Roosevelt, or they hated him. And, uh, and they thought he was going to, you know, no third term and, you know, I mean, a million things. And the country was very, very tribal in the 30s, but Roosevelt's tribe was bigger and in my opinion, they did some wonderful things, but I happened to grow up in a household where we didn't get served dessert until we said something nasty about Roosevelt. I mean, I'm speaking. <laughs> and believe me, if you don't get dessert, you're going to say something nasty about Roosevelt. <laughs> and so you trained them young and, you know, all kinds of things. And uh, so I've been, I've seen, a, I, I, I think I've seen a period that, it wasn't that way when, you know, if, if Eisenhower was running against Stevenson or, you know, or whatever it might be. I mean, it, uh, uh, you know, people, they didn't, they didn't just, they had a partisan behavior and they had a certain amount of tribal always, but I, I, I think it, I don't think it's a good development for society generally when people get tribal regardless. I mean, it, uh, Charlie, what tribes are you a member of? <laughs> well, in California, we have a legislature which is completely gerrymandered, so nobody can ever be thrown out by the voters. And therefore, the only people in the legislature are insane rightists and insane leftists. And they get together every 10 years, and there's usually six moderates somewhere in the legislature. And so they rejigger all the districts to throw them out, because neither party can stand them. Now that is government in California. Yeah. And, and you live there and you have to go back? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I'm sure you'll have a walk And I you. prefer living there to living in Russia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, who, who haven't we gotten in trouble with? <laughs> What was it, Lenny Bruce, that you say, is there anyone I've forgotten to offend you? The, uh, section 10, I believe.
hello, Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger. My name is Sahaj. I am from New Jersey, and I'm currently a freshman at Rutgers University. Um, you knew quite early on that you wanted to be investors, and you've obviously been amazing at it. What advice would you have for someone who's still trying to figure out what they want to focus on and find their calling? Well, that is a, it is a very interesting question because I, got, I was very, very lucky in that I, um, I found what I wanted to do because my dad happened to be in a business that he wasn't interested in, but they had a, some books down there, and I loved my dad, and I'd go down and read the books, and they interested me. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad he wasn't a, you know, a professor or professional boxer or something, or I, you know, I wouldn't have any teeth left or anything. <laughs> I, I, it, it, was, it was accident, just totally accident. But... I do think, I do think you know it when you see it, and it doesn't mean you can follow it. I, I would tell the students that wrote in the report, I mean, you know, find out what you love doing it. You spend most of your life doing it, and that, uh, why in the world would you want to be uh, around for a lifetime uh, working with people that you didn't like unless you had to, which sometimes happens, and uh, just work for whomever you admire the most. And uh, I gave a talk at Stanford one time, and somebody showed up at Tom Murphy's office, I think, <laughs> a couple of days later. I mean, that person was right. And, of course, it's what I did when I got out of school. I, I wanted to work for Ben Graham. I mean, that, that is, I just, I didn't care what I got paid. It didn't make any, you know, I'm, it just is... I just knew that that's what I wanted to do, and then I pestered him for three years, and he finally hired me. Uh, and then I found somebody else that I'd even rather work for than Ben, who happened to be myself. <laughs> and, uh, so, so, so I've been working for myself ever since. But I worked for—I had about four bosses in my life. Uh, you know, I, I done the Lincoln Journal. With, uh, 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 name slips my mind at the moment. He's a wonderful boss. It was Cooper Smith and J.C. Penney's here in Omaha. And they, they all were wonderful people. But I still preferred working for myself. And, of course, Charlie and I both worked for my grandfather. And, and we just didn't, we didn't find it that interesting. At, uh, uh, I, I, I never, I don't remember, how, how'd you, why'd you ever decide to go to work at the store? Charlie? Charlie worked there in 1940. I worked. Well, I, I worked just for the experience of working. I didn't need the money. My father gave me an ample allowance, and I also had a private business. So uh, I was kind of working as a lark in your grocery store. Twelve hours a day. Yes. As, for a lark. Yeah, as a lark. Yes. Do you consider that a good investment of your time? I'm looking back on it. Well, I had never done it before, and I wanted to have a little of that experience, and I wasn't going to do it very long. Hmm. That sure as hell wasn't the reason I worked. <laughs> well, <laughs> but I could give that young lady the advice. Figure out what you're bad at and avoid all of it. <laughs> yeah. 
That's the way Warren and I found our provision. Absolutely. We, yeah, we, we failed at everything else. We worked at everything until we found the ideal employers ourselves. <laughs> you know, and that, that, was an organ, that was something we really admired. Was <laughs> yeah, I know. Warren said work for somebody you admire. <laughs> the only one he knew was the one he was shaving. self-employed. You see when he was shaving. <laughs> but it isn't bad advice. It isn't bad advice. I mean, who wants this? If they've got an option. I mean, if you're, you know, Charlie went into the service and whatever year it was in the 40s, and he didn't really have a choice of who he was going to work for. And as I remember, it didn't really work out that well who he worked for, Charlie, did it? Well, <laughs> if you stop to think about it, the two things that neither one of us has ever succeeded at. One, we've never succeeded at anything that didn't interest us, right? Right. And we've never succeeded at anything that was really hard where we didn't have much aptitude for it. Yeah, and we've been doing whatever we please for yeah, 60 years just... now, I mean. <laughs> and we get, you know, we have fun in our way. And I'm we... just amazed, you'd think if you're smart, you could do things that don't interest you well, but you can't. Well, I've certainly got a lot of examples in my own case, but we won't get into them here. <laughs> and we will go to Becky. This question comes from Foster Taylor in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He said he recently listened to the Berkshire Hathaway 2008 annual meeting where you talked about global oil production. At the time, you talked about major ramifications if global oil production went below 85 million barrels in 25 years. We are at the 14-year mark, and global oil production looks to be 79 million barrels. At the same time, we're depleting our strategic oil reserves. Should the United States be doing something differently, and do you see consequences to these actions in the next 10 years if we do not become more proactive? Well, Charlie's the expert on oil. Well, I bet. <laughs> Only compared to me. <laughs> Samuel Johnson said it's harder, hard to determine the order of precedency between a louse and a flea. <laughs> it's hard to tell which of us is more incompetent in oil. <laughs> the, yeah, we're still competing. <laughs> I have a different view on this subject. I like having big reserves of oil. If I were running the benevolent despot of the United States, I would just leave most of the oil we have here and I'd pay whatever the Arabs charge for their oil and I'd pay it cheerfully and conserve my own. I think it's gonna be very precious stuff over the next 200 years. And so, and nobody else has my view, so I, it doesn't bother me, I just think they're all wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but at any rate, I, that is not the normal view. And we've been pretty flexible in our own view. I mean, actually, the, the uh, you know, the, the federal government is serving up however many billion barrels of, of the stuff that, that into, into the economy. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago that, you know, the idea that anybody produced a barrel of oil was somehow uh, something terrible. I mean... The, just try doing without 11 million barrels a day and see what happens tomorrow. It, it, is, it is something that 
everybody has a feeling on immediately. And, and uh, uh, you know, this gets into uh, a whole bunch of different uh, tribes of sorts. And, and you offend an awful lot of people if you talk in any way about it. But it, in the end, I think, at the moment at least, most people feel that it's nice to have some oil in this country than not have it. And, uh, and we're using a lot of it. And if we were to try and change over in three years or five years, uh, uh, I, I, nobody knows what would happen, but, but the odds that it would work well are extremely low, it seems to me. Charlie, why don't you say something more dramatic so you'll be the one that offended the most people? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you, if you stop to think about it, the oil industry is being so vilified now, I can hardly think of a more useful industry, more, and I don't know about wildcatters, but certainly the petroleum engineers I, I know and the people who design our oil refineries and pipelines are some of the finest and most reliable people I know. And I see very little trouble with the oil supply thing in the United States. So I'm basically in love with Standard Oil. So, and I, I don't have this feeling that it's an evil, crazy place. Uh, I, I wish the rest of the world worked as well as our big oil companies. Well, we better move on to Station 11. <laughs> I'm not sure whether Station 11 is operative. Well, we're here. Okay. Um, greetings from the overflow room. My name is Glenn Tung. I'm a shareholder from New York. This is my 20th Berkshire annual meeting, and I'm delighted that we're able to once again be here in person. You two have brought tremendous joy to all of us through the years, and speaking personally, your wisdom has not only made me a better investor, but more importantly, a better, happier person. It's a privilege and honor to thank you. So Warren and Charlie, thank you. Well, that's my kind of a question. Yeah, that, that, that's <laughs> fine. Let's have more of those. <laughs> yeah. Or you Mike. can say it again. I mean, <laughs> maybe you could sing it. <laughs> maybe I should quit at this point. Let him um, go to it. <laughs> my question relates to share repurchases. Since you started buying back Berkshire shares in size two years ago, the repurchases have ranged between $1 billion and $3 billion per month. By my estimate, it appears that the buyback rate is about $3 billion per month when Berkshire's trading at a 20 or so percent discount to intrinsic value, $2 billion per month at about a 10 percent discount, and $1 billion per month at a 0 to 10 percent value. Do I have that about right and approximately, uh, approximately right? And do any other factors influence the rate of share repurchases? Well, uh, after you were so nice in your introduction, I have to say that, yeah, <laughs> that you're actually wrong in that. In, in, in if, if somebody had offered us $50 billion worth of stock uh, at a certain point in the last three or four, five months, uh, we'd have taken it. You know, it's, it's that simple. And... As I mentioned earlier, we, we haven't bought any stock in April. It, it, uh, it's something that when we can do it, and we know, at least we think the probabilities are very high, we certainly believe it in terms of our own evaluation and our own investment. Uh, we think that we're improving things 
for the remaining shareholder. Uh, we'll buy it back, and if we don't, we don't buy it back. And, and if we have the choice of buying businesses that we like or buying back stock, controlling factors how much money we have, we'd, we'd, we'd rather buy businesses. And so it isn't, you know, we don't, we don't stay awake at night uh, working out formulas or anything of the sort. Uh, but we don't ever do it if we think that we're not doing something at the time. If we had a lemonade stand and, and Charlie and I and you owned it, and the lemonade stand was making us about a buck a week or something, and we divided it up, and, and you said you wanted to get out. And uh, uh, if you said one number, we'd, we'd have the funds in the, our little buy, lemonade company, and we'd buy you out, and if we didn't like the price, we wouldn't buy you out. And that's, it's, uh, it's the same way we feel. We don't, but we do feel an obligation to do things that we think are intelligent and in no way risk, absolutely no way in, present any risk of financial problems under any circumstances we, we can envision, except maybe something like nuclear war. Uh, you know, we will, we'll, we will do it, but uh, it never can be that big a factor. Certain companies, well, Charlie, I think, spoke the other day in connection with Henry Singleton. Uh, I think he bought back 89% of the the company over time. And he sold stock like crazy or issued it much earlier when it was overpriced. And he bought it back underpriced. But the key to that, of course, is having people think you're wrong <laughs> in doing it. So he was able to buy a ton of it. And there's some other companies that have bought a ton of it. And Berkshire isn't going to get the chance to do that because we, we uh, if people think we're buying the, we've got sensible shareholders is what it amounts to. If we had the same group of shareholders that own two-day puts and they were our shareholders, we'd buy back the whole company, you know, in a, in, in a very short period of time. But it's such an easy concept to assess. I mean, the second stock I bought, bought City Service Preferred, that was the first one. Second stock I bought was a company called Texas Pacific Land Trust. And that came out of the bankruptcy of the Texas and Pacific Railroad back in the 1880s or something like that. And they had three million some acres and they owned the minerals and they owned the surface and everything else. But it was, it was terrible land in the 1880s. But they had some kind of a charter that said to use the proceeds from land sales. Whatever it was, they were gonna buy in stock every year. And, uh, and you know, I sat there when I was 13 or 14, and I figured if I lived to be 100, I would own the whole place. Well, I haven't lived to be 100 yet, and I didn't buy the whole, I wouldn't have bought the whole place. So both calculations are <laughs> so far imperfect, but it, it's uh, been a remarkable company, just plain remarkable, because they would talk about grazing fees of $6,000 a year or something like that, you know, maybe when they had 3 million acres, and then, they kept finding oil and more oil and more oil and 
and they've changed the form and all kinds of things, but they bought in, in stock week after week after week. And I sat there and figured out how long it would take until I owned the whole company. And, and I obviously made some improper calculations <laughs> because it wouldn't have worked that way. But uh, it, it still was apparent to me it would be a very good idea if they had three million acres down there that they got all through with and they kept their mineral rights and all kinds of things, which they were doing. Uh, you know, it ought to, at a very cheap price, it ought to work out well for anybody who sat around for a long time. And it has worked out extremely well for anybody who sat around a long time, but, but nobody knew that they were going to find a lot of oil and that eventually El Paso would grow out far enough so that the the surface lands became worth some money that they were somewhat near El Paso. Mm -hmm. Then you had to go a couple of hundred more miles to find the next person, but that was another problem. So uh, it's, it's just so, some of the stuff is so simple, you know, but, but you know, people want to get their PhD or something, so they, they, they work out hundreds of pages and have lots of Greek letters in it and all that sort of thing. And, and, you know, either you're buying, buying out your partner at an attractive price, or you're not buying them out at an attractive price. And if you got the money around to do it, and the price is attractive, you don't have some other opportunities. You know, why not? Do, I mean, you, you got to come out ahead by doing it. And if certain other, if you've got other things that are more intelligent, you you don't do it. And and if it, and if it isn't intelligent on an absolute basis, you also don't do it. Charlie, have you got anything to? Add to the. What were you doing in 1943? <laughs> you were in the service. Oh, Warren, we'd be crazy if we didn't rather enjoy having come a considerable distance from small beginnings. And to do that in good company, it's a, it's a favored life. Yeah. We've been very fortunate. Yeah. And tomorrow. Monday, I can tell you, it's almost certain that if anybody offers us, well, we share trade of Berkshire, and we won't buy any. But, but it's also pretty fair chance someday a lot of shares, quite a few shares, not a lot. Berkshire's got the, our shareholders are too smart. That's one of our problems. <laughs> we want to repurchase shares, but we really don't want to squeeze it. We don't want to squeeze out anybody. But, but we also are here to do things that increase the value. Of for the people who stick with us, I mean, it's uh, not very complicated, and and uh, we'll get. Well, there'll be times when we'll do it, and there'll be times when we won't. But it won't. There won't be any formula, but there will be the principles that I've just expressed. And and uh, and my guess is that my successor and their successor will have a similar calculation because we're looking for people that are rational and devoted to, to Berkshire. For, so. So, Glenn, thanks for coming. And uh, Becky, you're next. This question was sent in by Dave Shane from Brooklyn, New York. He's responding to something he heard earlier today. He said, in the future, will Greg be able to act with the same spontaneity that you mentioned earlier and make immediate multi-billion dollar decisions without board approval? Well, my guess is that the board it's just they respond as people do 
they'll be, they'll put some more restrictions or they'll have some more consultation on a lot of matters that, that uh, or some matters, uh, than they, they do with me. I mean, that, uh, uh, they won't need to, but they'll feel that they haven't had the experience, they haven't seen them as long, and a whole bunch of things, and they'll feel that the Delaware laws protects them better, and incidentally, they don't have directors and officers liability insurance. I mean, it, it, uh, virtually every company on the New York Stock Exchange has it, and uh, uh, we just don't buy it. I mean, uh, come on the board, and you're a trustee for a whole bunch of people that trust you and me. Uh, I'm talking about the directors and me. Uh, you know, fine, and the, but it's... It, it's very interesting. People, people go on museum boards, you know, and they're expected to contribute. People go on college boards, and they're expected to contribute money. And it's, they say it's a great honor to be on a university board or museum board or whatever. It's a great honor, and, and therefore you should raise money for us. Well, frankly, I think our board's more interesting than being on a university board or, you know, or a hospital board or something. I don't know. I wouldn't know what they were talking about in any way and on museum board or art board. And so in, uh, in, uh, uh, you know, but people have found that they can make $300,000 a year, uh, you know, which is way more, which is enormously important to some people and is meaningless to others. Uh, and I mean that. Chances are, if, if somehow they'd arranged it so that directors didn't get paid at all, there'd be plenty of people who wanted to be directors. I mean, there'd be a prestigious sort of thing and all that, but, but in effect, it's, it's money I, that uh, comes very easily. I did, the whole idea of the independent director, frankly, is it just doesn't really make any sense Okay. You don't think a director is independent who needs three hundred thousand dollars? He needs the money. Yeah, I, I mean, he's independent I, the way a slave is independent. I am, I am going to read a few sentences which are absolutely the case. Except I'm doctoring. There's just a, I don't want I don't want anybody to be identified, obviously, with this. And these are just, but these are word for word excerpts. Was. And I'm not, I'm not telling you whether it's a, a woman or a man. I'm going to use a male pronoun because it's just because it's easier. But I picked out a few sentences from a letter I received many years ago. And this letter said, I'm writing to you with a great deal of reluctance and a sense of personal embarrassment. I have tried all of the conventional means of raising the money. This person needed a couple million dollars. And I wouldn't have known the person if I saw him on the street. You know, but but uh, but it wrote this letter and said I need a couple million dollars. And uh, and then this is the item that I think you might find interesting. And I've kept the letter. My income is composed 100% of my board fees. Well, he yeah, I just looked him up and. Uh, time. He was a director of five prestigious companies, 
and they've been directors of others and directors, and he's going to be directors, a whole bunch of things. But he was desperate for money, and he says he's getting 100% of it for board fees. And he was an independent director, classified as an independent director at every one of these companies. Uh, and uh, it's just astounding to me uh, that, uh, you know, we're going to have a shareholders meeting in just a couple of minutes. We're going we're to start it. And uh, um, it's just astounding to me that uh, 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 in 2006, we own 9% of the Coca-Cola company. I mean, maybe they gave me a free Coke. I mean, uh, but we own 9% at Berkshire Hathaway. We can, obviously cared about the future of the Coca-Cola company. And, and uh, uh, this so happened in, in that year. CalPERS and a few others uh, recommended that we be voted against for something or other. And, and at one time, there were two big institutional investors that voted because they didn't think I was independent because Dairy Queen bought some Coca-Cola, uh, or, or actually the people that had our franchises bought some Coca-Cola. I mean, do they think I can't add things in <laughs> if we've got billions and billions and billions of dollars that, that I'm going to be compromised? And, but it's, it's just nutty. And uh, so one year, my, my, my vote fell from 90... 96%, yeah, maybe it was 98% vote approval to 84% because, uh, I forget whether it's 2004 or 2000, somewhere along the line, they just decided that, that I wasn't the right sort of person to be able to handle these responsibilities. <laughs> and, uh, uh, um, you know, it, the idea that somebody an important part of their income. I mean, what they want, they may want to do a lot of other good things. It doesn't, it doesn't mean they're terrible people. But if the, if the difference is whether you, uh, how you live, and in this case, whether the person might go broke, uh, uh, how in the world you can call somebody like that independent and say that anybody owns a lot of, you know, maybe Walter Scott's you know, not independent or maybe, it's just ridiculous. But it's the way the, the rules are and we, we will, we follow the rules, but. Well, they don't want them just independent. Now they want one horse, one rabbit, one cow, one what, whatever. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I feel like Galileo. Independence I, is not enough. You got to have a very diverse kind of independence. Yeah, yeah, and and if you if you desperately need the money, in this case, 100% of the income coming from it, uh, you're on five of the most prestigious boards in the, in the country, and 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 classify as independent on each and other, other and all you're hoping is that. Well, I think your CEO gets called we can by another CEO and says, is this guy okay? And you say, of course he's okay, which means, of course, he doesn't cause trouble. And so he gets on a sixth board. Anyway. I know. <laughs> All but, I say is it's not our idea of an independent director. No, no, it, it's all a little...
crazy, which brings us to the fact that we're now going to have our annual meeting here. In about 15 minutes, we'll, we'll, we'll reconvene at 3.45, and then we'll do the, uh, the, the business of the meeting uh, that is required. And, uh, and you're all welcome to stay. Or, and uh, uh, it's very... <laughs> we'll now come to, to the moment you've all been waiting for. We'll all have, we will have the annual meeting. Uh, Charlie doesn't join me for this because once or twice in the past he was caught on camera uh, sleeping. So <laughs> we've solved that one. And, uh, and uh, we're now going to have a an annual meeting where I follow a script. And uh, you may think that's impossible, but I'll do it. <laughs> so the meeting will now come to order. I'm Warren Buffett, Chairman of the Board of Directors of the company. I welcome you to this 2022 annual meeting of shareholders. Mark Hamburg is Secretary of Berkshire Hathaway, and he will make a written record of the proceedings. Rebecca Amick has been appointed Inspector of Elections at this meeting. And she will certify to the count of votes cast in the election for directors and the motions to be voted upon at this meeting. The named proxy holders for this meeting are Greg Abel and Mark Hamburg. Does the secretary have a report of the number of Berkshire shares outstanding, entitled to vote, and represented at the meeting? Yes, I do. As indicated in the proxy statement that accompanied the notice of this meeting that was sent to all shareholders of record, on March 2nd, 2022, the record date for this meeting, there were 614,692 shares of Class A Berkshire Hathaway common stock outstanding, with each share entitled to one vote on motions considered at this meeting, and 1,287,633,719 shares of Class B, Berkshire Hathaway Common Stock Outstanding, with each share entitled to one ten-thousandth of one vote on motions considered at this meeting. Of that number, 423,719 Class A shares and 759,159,354 Class B shares are represented at this meeting by proxies returned through Thursday evening, April 28th. Okay, and... Uh I will interrupt this meeting for one second to announce that we're still selling things next door and we've sold 15 boats. Uh, so with that uh, brief commercial, and, uh, uh, and if anybody leaves, I will not be offended. Uh, thank you. The number represents a quorum and we will therefore directly proceed with the meeting. The first order of business will be a reading of the minutes of the last meeting of shareholders. I recognize Ms. Sue Decker who will place a motion before the meeting. I move that the reading of the minutes from the last meeting of shareholders be dispensed with and the minutes be approved. Do I hear a second? I second the motion. The motion is carried. The next item of business is to elect directors. If a shareholder is present who did not send in a proxy or wishes to withdraw a proxy previously sent in, you may vote in person on the election of directors and other matters to be considered at this meeting. Please identify yourself to one of the meeting officials in the aisle so that you can receive a ballot. 
I recognize Ms. Sue Decker to place a motion before the meeting with respect to election directors. I move that Warren Buffett, Charles Munger, Gregory Abel, Howard Buffett, Susan Buffett, Stephen Burke, Kenneth Chenault, Christopher Davis, Susan Decker, Davis Go David Gottesman, Charlotte Guyman, Ajit Jain, Ronald Olson, Wallace Weitz, and Merrill Whitner be elected as directors. I second the motion. It has been moved and seconded that the 15 individuals named in Ms. Decker's motion be elected as directors. The nominations are ready to be acted upon. Are there any shareholders voting in person? They should now mark their ballot on the motion. Ms. Amick, when you are ready, you may give your report. My report is ready. The ballot of the proxy holders in response to proxies that were received through last Thursday evening cast not less than 449,190 votes for each nominee. That number exceeds a majority of the number of the total votes of all Class A and Class B shares outstanding. The certification required by Delaware law of the precise count of the votes will be given to the secretary to place with the minutes of this meeting. Thank you, Ms. Amick. The 15 nominees have been elected as directors. The next four items of business relate to four shareholder pr proposals that are each set forth in the proxy statement that can be accessed at BerkshireHathaway.com. The first proposal requests that the company adopt a policy and amend the bylaws to require the chair of the board of directors to be an independent member of the board. The directors have recommended that the shareholders vote against the proposal. I will now recognize Peter Flaherty, a representative of National Legal and Policy Center, to present the proposal. Good afternoon. I am Peter Flaherty, chairman of the National and Legal and Policy Center. I'm from Washington, D.C., but please don't hold that against me. Our proposal would separate the roles of chairman and CEO. Sorry, Charlie. But I would take it one step further and suggest that Berkshire remove itself from corporate America's assault on American institutions and culture. I'm proud to say I'm a capitalist, but it is obvious to me that capitalism is failing to deliver for the American people. Real wages have been falling for years. Wealth disparity has never been greater. And right outside my hotel window here in Omaha is a homeless encampment, an all too familiar sight in American cities. We don't have a free economy, we have bailout capitalism. When small businesses lose money, they go out of business. But when billionaires bet wrong, government steps in. Money printing by the Federal Reserve and irresponsible, debt-fueled spending by politicians, what they call fiscal stimulus, have artificially inflated asset values. So those with the most assets benefit the most. Wage earners get ruinous inflation. But even worse than the wealth gap is the values gap. The top 1% now seek to impose their corrupt morality upon the rest of us, whether it's in the form of critical race theory, transgenderism, and or the myriad of other woke causes that permeate corporate advertising and messaging. Why has corporate America embraced both economic and cultural radicalism? It's pretty simple. When you have so much money, your fortune is going to come under scrutiny. The best way to insulate yourself and keep anti-business off your back 
is to embrace their causes, even if in the process you undermine the system that produces your wealth. That is what allowed Mr. Buffett to advocate for higher taxes, even though they will fall in the middle class. The Federal Reserve has offered free money to corporate America for over a decade now, creating a class of oligarchs and greatly enhancing corporate political power. Executives now believe that they can tell elected governors and legislators what to do, as we've seen in Indiana, Georgia, Texas, and Florida. Last year, Coca-Cola CEO James Quincy, a British citizen, sought to kill Georgia's new voter integrity law by making inaccurate and inflammatory statements about it. He also instituted diversity training, whereby white employees were encouraged to try to be less white. Despite being Coke's most celebrated shareholder, Warren Buffett is nothing about Quincy. In fact, Mr. Buffett jumped on the America is Racist bandwagon by signing a statement by corporate leaders suggesting that Republicans seek to extract ballot access based on race. All this did not prevent Coke from sponsoring the Winter Olympics in China, which has never had a free election, and where minority communities are the victims of genocidal policies. And what about Apple? A large part of Apple's supply chain is in China. The company removes apps from the App Store at the request of the Chinese government because they are used by human rights activists. And of course, Apple is the world's most successful corporate tax minimizer, famous for routing profits through offshore tax shelters. Over at American Express, the company instituted an anti-racist initiative for employees that teaches that capitalism is fundamentally racist and requires workers to engage in an exercise to determine whether they are the oppressor or the oppressed. Activism by woke CEOs may be reaching its limits. The people of Florida are fighting back against Disney's Robert Chapek, who not only embraces the view that gender is a form of oppression, but that kindergartens must be forced to confront it. Mr. Buffett has praised the brand endurance of Disney's characters and the trust parents place in its content to be safe and appropriate for children. But now the company is adding warnings to Dumbo, Peter Pan, and Aladdin about the stereotypes they allegedly portray. And poor Prince Charming has been excised for kissing Snow White, quote, unquote, without consent. Warren Buffett is yet to address the crisis dripping corporate America, and I fear he never will. Yes, Berkshire may be a holding company, and Mr. Buffett may stay out of the way of managers. But what happens when these executives use their companies to wage a social revolution that most Americans don't want? Is he not responsible? He can't have it both ways. In this country, wealth has been admired and even celebrated because our system allows anyone to become rich. But what happens when Americans suddenly find their history and future under attack by corporate America? The social compact that permits such affluence will be broken. Mr. Buffett, if you are the face of the capitalism, why don't you do something to save it? Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Flaherty. <laughs> well, uh, if uh, there are any shareholders um, voting in person, they should, now should mark their ballot on the motion. Ms. Amick, when you're ready, you may give your report.
My report is ready. The ballot of the proxy holders in response to proxies that were received through last Thursday evening casts 72,298 votes for the motion and 421,181 votes against the motion. As, as, as the number of votes against the motion exceeds a majority of the number of votes of all Class A and Class B shares properly cast on the matter, the motion has failed. The certification required by Delaware law of the precise count of the votes given to the secretary to be placed with the minutes of this meeting. Thank you, Ms. Amick. The proposal fails. Um, the second proposal, second proposal requests that the company publish an annual assessment addressing how the company manages physical and transitional climate-related risks and opportunities. The directors have recommended that the shareholders vote against the proposal. I now, will now recognize Tim Humans, a representative of Federated Hermes, to present the proposal. I thank the chair, the board, and fellow shareholders. I'm Tim Yeomans, Lead North America, EOS at Federated Hermes, here today to talk about ballot item three, a proposal that is co-sponsored by Brunel Pension Partnership Limited, represented by EOS, Caste Depot et Placement du Quebec, California Public Employees Retirement System, and State of New Jersey Common Pension Fund D on behalf of their combined millions of ultimate beneficiaries. EOS, CalPERS, and CDPQ co-sponsored a similar proposal last year asking the company to commence climate-related risk reporting, which the company has not started. The context for this year's parent company climate reporting proposal is, however, different in three ways. First, we've added New Jersey Common Pension Fund D. Second, we stand before this annual meeting of shareholders, backed by, in our estimate, the majority of non-insider votes cast at last year's annual meeting. We provided the company tallies showing that the majority of non-insider votes cast supported last year's proposal, as, and uh, Glass-Lewis has also corroborated this result. The company disagrees, but has not shared its reasoning. Third, the parent company began engaging with the co-sponsors this year, and the company recently published a supplement to the chair's letter from Vice Chair Abel discussing climate change matters in the company's energy and rail subsidiaries. Also, the parent company's audit committee has amended its charter to now include climate risk oversight. We welcome the company's new engagement approach, Vice Chair Abel's supplement, and the revised audit committee charter. However, these changes do not address in any meaningful way what last year's non-insider majority-supported shareholder proposal asked for and what this year's ballot item three asked for, which is that the parent company should A, commence annual climate-related financial reporting for its subsidiaries where material, and for the parent company as a whole following the recommendations of the task force on climate-related financial disclosures. B, explain how the board oversees climate-related risks for the combined enterprise. And C, explore the feasibility of the parent company and its subsidiaries establishing science-based greenhouse gas okay. reduction targets. Here is why all shareholders, including the non-insider shareholders who supported last year's shareholder proposal, should once again this year tell the board to change course and support parent company climate risk reporting. 
Vice Chair Abel's supplement talks about emissions reductions. We asked the parent company to report on climate-related financial risks, not just emissions reductions, as these risks may be material. Abel's letter also talks about emissions reductions in rail and energy, two of the four giants of Berkshire Hathaway, as they are referred to in the chair's annual letter. What about climate risk in insurance? The company has 60 subsidiaries and more than a few large investment holdings. The company should disclose material climate-related financial risks beyond rail and energy in a composite parent company picture. We asked the company to allocate a small portion of its more than $100 billion in cash equivalents to climate risk reporting at the parent company level. Climate financial risk may be significant, even material at the parent company. On page K26 of the 2021 annual report, the company states that climate-related risks could produce losses and significantly affect financial results. The company audit, however, is silent on climate risk. We have asked the auditor, Deloitte, to explain this inconsistency. We asked the audit committee to explain why Deloitte has not disclosed how it considered climate-related risks in its review of financial statements when the company itself disclosed this is a significant risk. Investors representing $68 trillion in assets make up the Climate Action 100-plus collaborative engagement on climate change. Berkshire Hathaway is the only major public company in the U.S., the only one, to earn now for two years in a row a score of zero on the CA 100-plus net zero assessment of climate progress. The undisputed worst performer. <laughs> this stands in stark contrast to Berkshire Hathaway's track record of usually strong long-term financial performance. In response to last year's non-insider majority shareholder vote, the company has made a start towards climate action. Must more is needed. Vice Chair Abel is the named CEO's successor. His annual meeting remarks both in 2020 and last year and his recent letter show he has a solid grasp of climate risk. We ask Vice Chair Abel to commence climate risk reporting at the parent company level. This would give the company an, a head start in complying with the SEC's new proposed climate disclosure rules that ask for more disclosure than we asked for in item three. We ask all shareholders, both non-insiders and insiders, including the chair, to cast their votes for item three in support of parent company climate risk disclosures starting before the 2023 annual meeting. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I, I do think it's worth discussing just a little bit uh, who the actual um, the actual constituency is of public pension plans. It, uh, generally speaking, we hear from various pension plans, it's not limited to California in the least, uh, but saying, you know, they're protecting their, their, the holders of the pensions and the retired people and all of that. And uh, therefore they're, they're usually suggesting that something that we may or may not agree with in terms of whether it's actually in the economic interest, but, but they do, and they honestly feel, incidentally, that they are representing 
the pension holders. People are getting, you're going to get these checks every month now. They're getting them now. They may get them later. It's a very understandable position. But of course, in essence, that's not who they represent. Uh, the, the people that are promised the pensions, whether it's in California or any other state in the union, they're going to get their checks. It's, it's obvious. The United States, American people, people of California, are simply not going to stand for the fact that people don't get their checks. So one way or another, they're going to get their checks. And the, to the extent possible, the states will attempt to realize from the taxpayers of the state in the future enough money so they can pay the checks. I mean, that's why states have adopted pension plans and that sort of thing. And many of the states have found their taxes to go up. I mean, in effect, no state government, uh, public opinion in the United States, they're not going to allow people not to get their pension checks. And the state does have the right to tax income and property and various things of people within their state, and they'll exercise the power or they'll look to the federal government for grants or they'll do anything, but the one thing they aren't going to do is stiff the pensioners. So you're probably representing, if you're uh, on a public pension board, you're, you're, you essentially are, are representing the the future taxpayers of the state. Now, there's one problem about future taxpayers. They can leave the state. And it gets awkward in certain states, particularly when people start leaving the state because the revenue that goes with those people from income taxes and sales tax and so on. So people have a fair amount of freedom of movement. They don't feel the same way about U.S. taxes. Not very many people are going to move from one place to another. but. They may even be, in the United States, they move. And it's gradual. Sometimes it isn't so gradual. And of course, as the tax base goes down, the past pensions stay. So they become kind of like an aging steel company or something of the sort, that uh, whatever it may be, uh, where the pension pens may become insolvent, but they're gonna keep paying the people. Just like we're paying on, you know, we've adopted certain policies on, on multi-employer pension plans and so on in the country. The United States is not going to stiff a bunch of people, particularly people that vote, and, but they're, the moral feeling is to do it. So uh, the real, the people that are, that, that the trustees should be worried about because they, of course, is the future taxpayers. And if they really mess things up, uh, those taxpayers become more and more likely to leave, and it has a lot of effects. Interestingly enough, you know, one of the calculations that might go on in Berkshire's mind if we're going to build a plant someplace that's going to sit there for 50 years is whether there are going to be any people around that are going to pay the tax and we can't move our plant. <laughs> so all these invisible decisions go on all the time. And uh, 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 it... I don't think there's anything wrong with representing the, the taxpayers of the future. I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, uh, sitting on a pension board, but I, I do think you ought, they ought to actually figure out 
who really is, uh, they really are representing, and they're representing future taxpayers. And in some cases, they're creating some tremendous problems for future taxpayers, because they're like politicians. I mean, they, you know, they've got promises they're going to fill, fulfill, but they've got to do it from revenue that comes in in the future, and they can't print money, and people can leave their state. So it's, it's an interesting set of set of problems, and uh, uh, I can't resist mentioning, in 1991, you've seen that Sol Solomon tape, uh, when Solomon was essentially, might or might not have gone down the drain and, uh, and had a bankruptcy, which was, in my opinion, would have spread like wildfire. And, uh, and uh, um, who knows what would have happened, just like in 2008 and 2009, you know, when Lehman fell on a few things. I mean, who knows what's going to happen after something like that. So Solomon was bigger relatively by far than Lehman was in 2008 and 2009. And on a Sunday in August, the Treasury Department, the Securities Exchange Commission, the Federal Reserve, all decided on a Sunday that something they did on Sunday morning really was a mistake and that they better change it on a Sunday or the whole economic system might go down the tubes. And in this book, which we have for sale out here, the other trillion dollar triage, in the first early page, it, it describes that period. I didn't know some of the stuff that's in the book even that was going on, but essentially the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan was brought in one time, uh, uh, Jerry Corrigan was there, Nick Brady was Secretary of the Treasury. They decided, with various degrees of conviction, but they did decide, because they had to decide by roughly 2.30 in the afternoon whether something they did at 10 o'clock, which was kind of unprecedented, they were going to reverse themselves. Now, can you imagine trying to get institutions like Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department to reverse themselves, but they did realize that they had probably done something that was going to cause a huge bankruptcy, which could turn into a whirlwind in Wall Street. So they reversed themselves and tells the story in this trillion-dollar triage. And I knew some of what was going on. There was other parts I didn't know what was going on. Anyway, all of those institutions reversed themselves very reluctantly. Big institutions do not like to reverse themselves, and they particularly not four hours later when some guy from Omaha said, if they, if, they, if they do this, we're going to declare bankruptcy in, in Tokyo because we're going to have a multi-billion dollar run and we can't pay it. And directors who, who approve preferential payments when they know the place is going bust have all kinds of legal liability and the whole thing is falling apart. And, and, and to their credit, enormous credit, you basically had the Fed and the SEC, uh, mostly it was the Fed and the Treasury, and they, they said, we just can't have this happen. It could pr produce an, uh, a national catastrophe. And 
for some weeks, we had about 130 or 40 billion dollars of funding, and 130 or 40 billion dollars was a lot of money in those days. We were the one of the three or four largest borrowers in the United States, and we borrowed daily, and we borrowed against government bonds. We had inventory there, but we only had four billion of equity, and we had 130 billion. And there was a guy, a wonderful guy, John McFarland. He was the treasurer. He slept down at the downtown uh, offices, or right near their offices, of Solomon for days and days and days and days because a billion dollars a day was draining out. There was a run on Solomon, and it was a run that the Treasury and the Fed and the SEC did not want to have happen and it reversed themselves and everything. And a few days into it, uh, for whatever reason, but we, CalPERS was a big lender to us, and they decided they weren't going to do business with with uh, Solomon anymore. So they were going to precipitate them. Uh, they were going to accelerate the run. -up. And uh, they announced one day that they kind of approved of everything that was going on, but they just didn't want anything to do with us, even though we were giving them government bonds as security. And this was accentuating the problems for the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Treasury, <laughs> and SEC, and no one knew how it was going to come out. Uh, but they pulled, and other people pulled, and John McFarland st stayed downtown and kept trying to raise a billion dollars every day to pay off people in terms of ruin that was occurring, and the Fed did not want this run to get out of hand, but they couldn't give us the money, and the Treasury didn't want the run to get out of hand, but they couldn't give us money, and so on. And it was, you know, it was a terrible problem. And uh, uh, CalPERS, like they say, they, they said, well, we don't want anything to do with these guys, so we won't lend on government securities, even though the loan is good. And then, uh, a little later, it was sent, they sent word to me uh, that if I would come out to California and talk to the people, the trustees, that then they would reconsider. So that was, that was what they wanted. Uh, as part of their deal not to cause a, keep participating in this run and, and take a different position. And I never would have done this for anything except for the fact that it was, it was Solomon. I mean, so basically I, I got on a plane and I flew to California and I met with the CalPERS people and I wasn't charging them anything. If I'd been charging them a lot of money, they would have paid attention and, and they still paid attention. They were very nice to me when I went out there. And I talked to them and uh, and they were happy, and they clapped, and they paid, didn't pay any attention to what I said because I wasn't charging a big fee or anything of sort. And I went back to New York, and then they started doing business with us and announced that really they had decided Solomon was fit to do business. So I have a little bias <laughs> in terms of when they come around and they, they present, a, present a proposal, and, and they say that, in their proposal, and this is in our proxy statement, and we filed this with the FCC. We're not going to say it if it isn't true. And basically, they they make a mistake. They and some other people that that uh, do this, they make a mistake and say something about the the shareholders voting. Uh, 
It says at the 2021 annual meeting, this is part of their supporting proposal, where a significant majority of non-inside shareholders supported a similar version of this resolution. Well, we say in our response, the proponent's assertion that at the 2021 annual meeting, a significant majority of non-inside shareholders supported a similar resolution is incorrect. In fact, a significant majority of such shareholders did not support the proposal. That's either true or false. And you know, I have the, the last report submitted by that same firm and that handles our material and at, uh, at, at uh, Broadmore, what is it, Broadbridge. And uh, it reports the number of shareholders. It's the, the last day before the voting or something like that. And it's got the, the number of of shareholders that support us and are against us, and it's, it's four to one in our favor and something like that. And, and it just doesn't make any difference to them. I mean, it, it, it's fascinating to me that... <laughs> um, and, you know, it... it uh, I, I would... I would be willing to wager somebody if we could find an impartial judge. And if you go to any group you want to pick, let's take the CEOs of the five leading utility companies in the United States, the CEOs of the 10 league, and ask them, you know, whether, whether Berkshire Hathaway Energy has been a, a leader in, in the field of renewables and so on. And they'd all say yes, but, but essentially, You've got a, a group of people that, that uh, write us letters and say, we want to be, we want you to do things our way, and you've got three million other shareholders, but forget about them and spend some money on this and, and have a meeting with us, and here's our way of measuring it. And, and admittedly, we've got all kinds of information up about what we've done, and they can come out to Iowa and look around, and it is the... It is the it is the renewables capital of the world, practically, and we're the ones that have done it. And, and uh, uh, they just, that isn't what they want. <laughs> uh, so, I like, you know, I'm for shareholder democracy and all that sort of thing, but the answer is that the resolution, you know, they pay lots of money to somebody that probably works in these groups, and they've got groups of, the, you know, they, They've got their way of doing. I get letters from from institutions in Europe, and they say, "Well, you know, you've got you may have 40 pages or a history of going back to 2006 of explaining what you're doing, but here's what we the way we want you to do it." And you know, and you know, how much energy is Granimals, which we own, is it, it's just it, it, it. You have to think, you know, as a person sitting here and almost, you know, it, it's, 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 it's nutty, but it's, these are the rules. You get on the proxy statement under certain circumstances. Most companies, they don't want a lot of resolutions, so it's just easier for them to, you know, set up a department and, uh, you know, pay a bunch of people to pay attention to him, just like Warren did when he flew across the whole country because he had, it wasn't money. I just, I was worried about a, a company surviving that, that the people in Washington, the supervisor were worried about it surviving. And, and, uh, and uh, if I came, if I flew across country and 
and uh, uh, paid them sufficient respect. I mean, it was kind of like the godfather or something, you know, I just bought out and then flew back. But, uh, so I, I have a certain reservation about, about uh, uh, shareholder proposals should have some meaning. I mean, I, I, it's the kind of thing I argued for when I was younger, but you know, basically it's become, uh, in my opinion, uh, there are certain items that you can put on the ballot and certain that you can't. And practically every executive in the country, now the chief executive wants to have a virtual meeting. The last thing he wants to have is shareholders and people stand up and propose things. And we'll just keep talking about it the way we see it is. And in the end, we will have a report as to the vote. And, uh, this time, and and I can assure you, we're not we're not stuffing the ballot boxes. You know, but we're not doing anything. I mean, voter fraud. You know, it, it uh, it's not like Chicago in the old days where you waited for the cemetery vote to come in and or that sort of thing. <laughs> we we don't count the votes. You know, we don't say where they come from. We don't know where they come from, but we can tell when two or three institutions have got huge amounts of shares, but they're one one or and they they vote a certain way and then they feel pure and they don't really what they care about is whether we check their boxes and the people that work for them a certain number of people are getting employed by them and and, and their hearts are pure uh but ours aren't impure <laughs> and uh, uh with that i think we ought to uh well I'll, i won't do this again but i i, I it, it just uh it's uh, it's a really interesting uh, development in terms of getting more a rules-based type of situation where basically every you know no company almost every company figures out how to negotiate with the people later and they all have con uh, a good many of the CEOs I mean they don't they just figure it's something that they endure in the business and they, they set up a department to, to answer the questions and meet with the people and show them the proper respect and, and so on and, and uh, you know, it's, it's uh, being done to, to uh, carry through on something which I think the, uh, the substance of is, is, is pretty similar. If I thought, if I thought Berkshire Hathaway energy was behaving in a way that was bad for society, worse than other utility companies, but no company. And the reason, of course, is that we don't take dividends out. So we, we pub tens of billions of dollars into the business. Most, most, in fact, every utility pays out the dividends. And it's not the fault of the utility management. That's just a policy that's been the case in the utility industry. But they don't really have much cash left over. And we have plenty of cash, and we'll put in more cash, and we'll, we're willing to build, you know, whatever amount of transmission lines and all kinds of things that would be helpful to the country. And and uh, and we're doing a fair amount of it, but we could do a whole lot more, and we're better positioned to do it, really, than than any utility company in the country. And I think if you talk to other utility executives, I don't advise you to go and met, put them on the spot or anything, but they would agree, but they also know that 
their life is easier if they just have somebody to take care of uh, people that want to be catered to, basically. And I catered to them in the time of Solomon in 1991 because 8,000 people were working there, and, and, and John McFarland was trying to raise a billion dollars a day in, in the Treasury and the Fed, and the SEC wanted us to stay alive. And in effect, uh, uh, that caused me to go and pay my respects to the Godfather, and I came back. But I do think a little background is kind of interesting on this. And with that, we'll, we'll ask Ms. Amick, uh, can you give your report? My report is ready. The ballot of the proxy holders in response to proxies that were received through last Thursday evening cast 127,214 votes for the motion and 370,415 votes against the motion. As the number of votes against the motion exceeds a majority of the number of votes of all Class A and Class B shares properly cast on the matter, the motion has failed. The certification required by Delaware law of the precise count of the votes given to the secretary to be placed with the minutes of this meeting. Yeah, and I will just add that, you know, I got a report a day or two ago, the last report they sent me from, from this firm, and, and it's four to one or five, they want to be glad to share it with anybody. But in terms of the number of shareholders that are, number of shareholders that based on what these people in New Jersey tell me the vote was, uh, we're, we're against them. And, uh, you know, it's, and if they would reintroduce the proposal next year, I just hope they leave that line out because it, the, the, I would just uh, uh, suggest that the, the, somebody read what the proposal is <laughs> or what the facts are before they, they, they spend, they, they announced their proposals and all that sort of thing. Okay, well, the third proposal requests that the company issue a report addressing if and, if and how it intends to measure and disclose and reduce GHG emissions associated with its underwriting, insuring, and investing activities. The directors are recommended the shareholders vote against the proposal. I will now recognize Jalen Spen, representative of Whistle Stop Capital, to present the proposal. Chairman. Mr. Buffett, and board members. Good afternoon. My name is Jalen Spann, and I want to first thank you for the opportunity to present proposal number four on behalf of shareholder representative As You So. This proposal asks Berkshire to measure, disclose, and begin reducing the greenhouse gas emissions supported by its insuring, underwriting, and investment activities. In its most simple terms, the proposal asks Berkshire to take responsibility for its contribution to climate change. The U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission has acknowledged that climate change can impair the productive capacity of the national economy. The litany of national and global events associated with climate change, the fires in California and Colorado, the floods across the Midwest, the growing strength of hurricanes, the deep freeze in Texas, to name just a few, demonstrate the growing risk and costs of climate change. 
2021 was the second most costly year on record for the world's insurers, with insured losses totaling $120 billion from natural catastrophes. Significantly, these losses can no longer be categorized as simply a bad year. As noted by Munich RE, economic losses caused by natural catastrophes are trending upward. The insurance industry faces year-on-year -year growth in insured losses related to climate change. Berkshire is not only exposed to climate-related risks but it is actively amplifying these risks through its continued investment in and underwriting of high-carbon activities. Berkshire is one of the largest providers of coverage to the oil and gas industry, surpassing peers such as Chubb and Liberty Mutual. Its shareholdings in coal alone amounts to $5.1 billion, once again, far surpassing its American peers. A financial institution's investment and underwriting activities are by far the greatest source of its total carbon footprint, highlighting the need for Berkshire to measure, disclose, and begin taking responsibility for the emissions it enables. The global financial sector is rising to the challenge of meeting the Paris Agreement's goal to maintain global temperature rise at 1.5 degrees Celsius. The Net Zero Insurance Alliance has grown to 22 members, seven of which are in the top 30 largest global insurers by market cap. All members have committed to reach net zero emissions from their insurance and reinsurance underwriting portfolios by 2050. AIG and the Hartford have also recently committed to reach net zero emissions from their underwriting and investment portfolios by 2050 or sooner. Berkshire is lagging both its American and its European peers a position that increases climate risk globally and to its own portfolios. The insurance industry, and Berkshire specifically, has a key role to play in the ongoing low-carbon transition. And we believe Berkshire has the ability to become a climate leader on this critical issue. And the first steps are to quantify the emissions associated with its underwriting and investing activities, disclose those emissions, and begin developing plans to reduce those emissions in alignment with the Paris goal. To ensure global success in protecting this planet and its inhabitants, every business must take responsibility for its own contribution to climate change. And we look forward to working with Berkshire to address this vital issue. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Blum. The uh, motion is now ready to be acted upon if there are any shareholders voting in person. They should now, how about a little light up here? They should now mark their proposal. <laughs> uh, they're about on the, on the motion. Ms. Amick, when you are ready, you may give your report. My report is ready. The ballot of the proxy holders in response to proxies that were received through last Thursday evening cast 127,065 votes for the motion 
and 370,630 votes against the motion. As the number of votes against the motion exceeds a majority of the number of the votes of all Class A and Class B shares properly cast on the matter, the motion has failed. The certification required by the Delaware law of the precise count of the votes given to the secretary to be placed with the minutes of this meeting. Thank you, Ms. Ahmed. Proposal fails. The fourth proposal requests the company report to shareholders on the outcome of the diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. The directors are recommended shareholders vote against the proposal. I will now recognize Jalen Spann, representative of the Whistle Stop, to present the proposal. Hello, I'm Jalen Spann. I'm speaking on behalf of the nonprofit advocacy organization As You Sow and Whistle Stop Capital. I formally move proposal number five, asking for Berkshire Hathaway to report on the outcomes of their diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts by publishing quantitative data on their workforce composition and recruitment, retention, and promotion rates of employees by gender, race, and ethnicity. Warren Buffett once mentioned that he had grown up with two sisters who, to quote Mr. Buffett, are absolutely smart as I am and better personalities. He also bravely admitted that he only placed women on his board after his wife suggested it in 2003, 40 years after he started his company. It's one thing to know that people of all genders, races, and ethnicities can contribute to Berkshire Hathaway. It is another thing entirely to intentionally and proactively create the space, opportunity, and training needed within a company for those people to be able to contribute without facing harassment and discrimination. In the absence of data, we must instead assume that Berkshire Hathaway companies are no better nor any worse than any company in America. The statistics for American companies are unacceptable, particularly when we consider the strong link found by the Wall Street Journal, McKinsey, Credit Suisse, and others between diversity, equity, and inclusion programs and corporate outperformance. 42% of Americans have witnessed or experienced racism at work. 64% of black employees say that discrimination is an issue in their own workplace. Many people of color are barred from entering the workplace at all. A meta-study reviewing data from 1989 to 2017 found that on average, whites received 24% more callbacks than blacks and 36% more callbacks than Latinos. If we take a look at Berkshire's executive team, we can see that headquarters should be proud of the gender and racial diversity present in its leadership team. The culture that exists at Berkshire Hathaway headquarters appears to be one that recruits, hires, promotes, and retains diverse employees. Mr. Buffett stresses the importance of culture and the value that it has on the long-term success of a company. He said that culture, more than rule books, determines how an organization behaves. 
Investors are looking for assurances that this culture is successfully implemented within the famously decentralized Berkshire Hathaway companies as well. In order to allow their investors to understand their workplace diversity, 87 of the S&P 100 companies have released or have committed to releasing their EEO1 form, which is a standardized government-mandated accounting of gender, race, and ethnicity breakdown by employment levels. By contrast, of the more than 60 companies Berkshire owns, only one has publicly released this form, one company. This is not the leadership that Mr. Buffett is known for. The company's inclusion data, the hiring, retention, and promotion rates of diverse employees must also be shared for investors to have a full understanding of the actual experience of not only Berkshire's employees, but of its portfolio company's employees as well. The board has released insufficient information to assure investors that it is attentive to diversity, equity, and inclusion at Berkshire Hathaway companies. We encourage transparency, even in the face of imperfection, in order to show that the company's leaders are truly committed to change and to attracting, retaining, and promoting the best possible employees. Thank you. I certainly agree with you that, that uh, my sisters were better looking, smarter, had better personalities, and in 1930, uh, they had a father and mother, teachers who loved them like uh, they loved me. And if I'd been born female, black, in various other countries, I would not have had remotely the life I've enjoyed. But uh, I, uh, if, if what the people at the top believe is important in terms of how our subsidiaries behave, they certainly, there's everybody that runs any one of our subsidiaries knows how I feel. And they also know that they're in charge of their own business and uh, that uh, we think we've got great leaders in every, virtually every company we have. Every now and then we find we've made a mistake, obviously, but uh, if uh, the idea that I should replace any of the people that run, run the businesses. And they're doing it. I, 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 uh, I just don't think that's the way to, to operate. And uh, I will tell you, just so that the question doesn't come up later, in terms of our shareholders, by, again, a four or five to one vote. So the owners of the Berkshire company, whether not forgetting about forgetting about A or B shares, you know, basically the big funds that uh, 
are worried about what their perception is, and but also may well believe it. Who knows what people's motivations are? Somebody said that the word motivation should never be used in the singular because you really don't know. But the one thing is that it's very hard to find people that uh, uh, are running big institutions that uh, you know are acting against their self-interest. Now, it doesn't mean they're acting for their self-interest necessarily. They're acting for a lot of reasons. But uh, uh, it, it's, uh, it's something that if, I could, if, if you could change that in people, it would do a lot more for American, Americans in the future. But you can't, basically can't change that. I mean, it's a situation of how people behave and protecting essentially their own interests and, and their own interests uh, 40 or 50 years ago was uh, uh, essentially to regard corporate America as a boys club and, and that's not acceptable anymore so they changed but they haven't changed as much by a substantial margin in relation to, to, uh, to blacks and it, uh, that's where we are as a society but overwhelmingly uh, uh, our shareholders don't don't agree with you even though they had a chance to uh, you gave them a chance to express their view on it so uh, Ms. Amick when you're ready you may give your report my report is ready the ballot of the proxy holders in response to proxies that were received through last Thursday evening cast 123,614 votes for the motion and 373,925 votes against the motion. As the number of votes against the motion exceeds a majority of the number of votes of all Class A and Class B shares properly cast on the matter, the motion has failed. The certification required by Delaware law of the precise count of the votes given to the secretary to be placed with the minutes of this meeting. Thank you, Ms. Amick. Proposal fails. I move that this meeting be adjourned. I second the motion to adjourn. Motion to adjourn has been made and seconded. The meeting is adjourned. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>